If I ever find me a woman as sexy as that song was, folks, I am done. I am literally done. This is 2023, folks. Welcome to it. And welcome to another ridiculously entertaining episode of The Last Stand Podcast. I'm your less than humble host, Wild Bill of the Wild Bill fame. Welcome, welcome to 2023. And I'm back. I'm back. You're back. We're all back for another year of podcast excellence, folks. The Christmas season and the craziness is behind us, and today we look forward to another great year of my righteous rhetoric that I render for your reception. Today I wanted to take a break from the usual commentary and talk about success, what our perceptions of it are, what I think it is, and some of the ways that perhaps some of these perceptions have changed over the years and decades in this country, and what that might mean for men and women, and men, men in particular and the things that they choose to do or engage with in life. And as per usual, we're going to dig into it and go wherever this goes, and we're going to say what needs to be said in this episode and in all the episodes to come uh, in 2023, because as you know, this is the bastion of free speech and righteous American opinion down on the ground right here in the good old USA. So hold on to your butts and buckle up, folks. The road in life and liberty is sometimes rough, but the destination is always worth the ride. Can I get a booyah? You and I have the courage to tell our elected officials that we want our national policy based on what we know in our hearts is morally right. So, that excellent music that you heard just before the intro, uh, that was Sidney Bechet. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, and the song was Petite Fleur, or Small Flower, uh, if I'm understanding the French correctly. Uh, it's one of the sexiest French-inspired jazz instrumentals uh, ever written, uh, in my opinion. And uh, it was first recorded in 1952 uh, by Bechet and his all-star band, um, now, Sidney Bechet was uh, a, a jazz saxophonist, a clarinetist. Uh, he was a music composer. Uh, he was born in 1897, and he died in 1959. He was one of the first jazz soloists in American history, folks. Okay? Uh, he, he spent much of his life in France, uh, if I understand the history correctly, uh, and I'm telling you, the influence is unmistakable, folks. You can't listen to that piece and not think of some 1940s uh, cafe in France somewhere uh, with the usual <laughs> 1940s atmosphere in France kind of thing going on. It, 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 I'm telling you, America invented jazz, but the French made it irresistible. I, I can't pass it up, folks. Uh, and that's a new thing that you didn't know uh, before about me, and uh, now it's a thing you know. So, moving right along. Here we are in the new year, 2023, uh, and as I said, we're going to talk a little bit about success. What is it? 
Uh, and the reason I'm talking about it is because, as y'all know, uh, a few buddies of mine do a podcast called Guy Wire. All right. Uh, it stars Matt Knight, Chris Andrews, and of course, the always entertaining Kevin Bishop. Uh, and it's the show that I listen to when I need a break from all the political commentary that I do. Um, <laughs> I'll listen to, I'll listen to guy wire, uh, listen to their non-political commentary and then immediately turn it in my head into political commentary, you know? <laughs> uh, and the topic of success, uh, and what is it, uh, came up in one of their latest episodes and, uh, and I, I, I kind of found myself thinking and asking, you know, is, is what they're saying kind of relevant to me, my generation, uh, you know, today's generations? Uh, then I began asking the question, well, why is it that we hear so many stories and situations today whereby employers are finding it difficult to find people to work certain jobs? You know, uh, what is it that the younger generation is looking for uh, in a job in life? Uh, and does that list of things equal a measure of success in life? And, you know, uh, what does the road to success look like for the younger generation? All right. What, what, what are we telling them about life and work uh, and the lessons that come with all of that? All right. Uh, and, you know, so I'm listening to this thing and it was, it was kind of interesting to listen to these guys who uh, I think grew up in the 90s, maybe early 2000s, uh, because much of what they were saying made, you know, it made sense. Okay, and it made sense because it was a lot of the, you know, you got to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and make things happen kind of thing. All right. Uh, and no doubt there's a lot of that. Okay. You, you, you have to have that kind of outlook or mindset that sometimes gets to, uh, that sometimes gets you to a point to where you want to go in life. Okay. Now, I never did hear the question, or may, maybe, I, maybe I just wasn't paying attention enough. Uh, I never did hear the question, where do you want to go in life, in job? You know what I mean? Uh, where does anyone want to go these days? All right. Is, is there a point in life uh, whereby you look at what you've done and say to yourself, this is the standard that I've met. Uh, you, you know, this is the standard that, that, that is, and I've met that standard uh, of success, and, uh, and I'm done. Uh, and more importantly, uh, where is the roadmap to success in life uh, that one wishes to achieve, right? What, what are those things? So I'm listening to this thing, uh, and Matt asked a question about halfway through the episode, I think. Um, he, he, he was talking to, uh, to Kevin Bishop, and uh, he says, do you consider yourself a success, and do you think that you're successful? Do you consider yourself to be a success, and the answer that, that Kevin gave, uh, it sounded like a no, okay? Um, and the reason being was that because he never made it to college, okay? Now, now in, in, in Matt's mind, there's two questions being asked here, okay, obviously. Uh, am I successful, and do I consider myself a success? And it, like I said, it sounded like Bishop was saying, no, not really, uh, because there was never... You know, in his world, there was never a metric of success that didn't include a college education and a college degree, right? And I thought to myself, uh, there it is, okay? There's, there's the thing. That's one of the things that we sold ourselves on, okay? Uh, or, or we sold it to our kids as one of the metrics of success uh, or one of the things that we consider to be a marker 
on the way to success, right? Uh, now, look, education has always been uh, some sort of marker, a hurdle, uh, a metric, a tool, uh, if you will, something that you used as a way to demonstrate to others that you had value to industry, all right, or, or some kind of a, a profession, all right? All throughout our history, you can read biographies of, uh, uh, you know, our founding fathers and how they began their lives modestly without any real means uh, and how they eventually worked their ways into learning institutions of the era uh, and excelled in whatever discipline that they concentrated in, okay? And we're talking about higher education here, okay? Um, and, and there's plenty of stories there of uh, individuals who never made it to college, all right, who never really had a formal uh, education. Nathaniel Green is one of those. He was one of the great military minds uh, during the Revolutionary War, okay? Uh, and again, we're talking about higher education, right? Because uh, the rudimentary education uh, back in the day, uh, literacy, you know, arithmetic, things like that, uh, those were taught inside the family unit, okay? Assuming that your parents had those skills, okay? Uh, literacy rates were much higher in New England uh, because of the population uh, that had been deeply rooted in the Protestant Reformation, okay? Uh, and they, they learned to read uh, so that they could read the Bible, all right? Now, adversely or inversely, uh, literacy was much lower in the South, where the Anglican church uh, was the established church, okay? Single working class people formed a large part of the population in the early years uh, as indentured servants, okay? And the plantation class, all right, the agriculture class, didn't support public education, all right? Uh, now, they arranged for private tutors for their kids, uh, and, and some of them even sent their kids to England for further education, okay? Um, but the, the first American schools in the 13 original colonies opened up in the 17th century. Boston Latin School uh, was founded in 1635. It's, it's, it's the first public school uh, in America, and it's the oldest existing school in the United States today. The first taxpayer-supported public school in North America, uh, the Mathers School, uh, was opened in uh, Dorchester, Massachusetts in th 1639. Colonists tried at first to educate by the traditional English methods of family, church, community, and apprenticeship, okay, with schools later becoming the key agent in socialization, all right, or your social life, all right. By the mid-19th century, the role of the schools in New England had expanded uh, to such a large degree that they took over many of the educational tasks that traditionally were handled by parents. All the New England colonies required towns to set up these public schools, and many did so. In 1642, the Massachusetts Bay Colony made proper education compulsory, uh, and other New England colonies uh, kind of followed their lead on that. Similar statutes were adopted in other colonies in the 1640s and the 1650s. In the 18th century, common schools were established. Students of all ages we're under the control of one teacher in one room, okay? Uh, and although they, they were publicly supplied these teachers, okay, the teachers were not free by, by any stretch of the imagination, okay? Students' families were charged tuition uh, or rate bills, okay? 
Um, now, as far as the schools go uh, and what was going on between the North and the South, literacy rates uh, are in dispute, but one estimate shows that at the end of the colonial era, uh, about 80% of males and 50% of females were fully literate. In other words, they were, you know, they were able to read, write, and sign their names to documentation and things like that. Uh, many in America then, uh, as today, uh, would never set foot inside an institution of higher learning. Instead, finding an apprenticeship with a tradesman and living their trade until such a time they could strike out on their own. And in many cases, uh, they'd, they'd revolutionize their particular industry with innovations that came with a passion remember that word, okay, that came with a passion for their trade and not necessarily inspired by, by higher college educations, okay? Uh, education has always been something that one would need on a basic level to start putting their foot forward in life, okay? But it, it wasn't always marketed as the one and only way to uh, a certain level of societal success, okay? It was, in, in, in many cases, a, a personal thing, uh, that one could use to benefit themselves, uh, benefit society at large. Uh, but, you know, there were so many ways in which one could achieve success, okay? They could achieve success, notoriety, wealth, uh, a station in life that, that one could use not only to benefit themselves, but again, benefit society at large. Now, Chris made a point that basically said that young adults used their parents' Uh, as a template or as a guide to what success was and that we, re we can't do that um, and that we shouldn't do that because the circumstances and situations of our parents and grandparents uh, were extremely different and that they, you know, they didn't have the time to ponder whether or not they were successful because they were trying to put food on the table and make ends meet, right? Uh, you know, uh, the economic situation, the buying power of the dollar, was drastically different. And the situations between now and then were so drastically different that they didn't have time to question whether or not they were being successful. All right. And, and in that, I would, I would disagree. Okay. Uh, the, you know, the idea of success. Okay. I, I would say that it was on our parents and grandparents' minds just as much as it is uh, on our minds today. And we can use our parents and grandparents as templates or examples of what success looks like or what it is precisely because we're concerned as much as they were about the very same things in life, whether we know it or not. You see, I, th I think what's happening here is we're starting to kind of mix the ideas of what success is uh, and what success actually turns out to be, okay? What success is in idea, okay? Uh, or in theory, uh, and what it actually turns out to be. Now, our parents, they most likely achieved successes by way of something different. Uh, Matt remembers his grandfather uh, did a lot of physical manual labor type stuff, you know, uh, farming, physical manual labors, uh, where more so today than yesterday, people are achieving whatever their measure of success is at the moment by the digital, the administrative, the less than manual labor kind of route, okay? Their success, though, was the very same as what young folks' uh, idea of success is or is going to be tomorrow, okay? Uh, you know, the realization of what success in actuality is is the same uh, in us today as it was in our grandparents and our parents, 
It's self-survival, survival of family, self-worth, and the worth of my family in terms of our name, okay? Uh, you know, Matt made a point about how toxic we've become in that today's generation seems to view successes as being the elevation of oneself by way of putting others down on social media. Now, we've had that sort of thing going on here forever, folks, uh, except back in the day, it wasn't digital, okay? It was newspapers, uh, editorials, commentary written by men uh, who are seeking to gain the upper hand in an argument by denigrating the arguments uh, made by the rival, okay, made by another individual in order to persuade the masses by denigrating that individual, okay? Uh, but the concerns of success uh, turned out to be the very same concerns that young people have today. What they do could be completely different. Uh, how they do it uh, and what doing it actually means for them is the same as it was for our parents and grandparents. Whether the younger generation knows it or not, uh, you know, now they damn sure recognize it later, okay, when they become the elders, okay? Uh, and this is where I think we strayed, folks. This is where this fundamental shift in thinking and sense of entitlement uh, came about, you know, where one is not yet due uh, any entitlement, okay? Uh, you know, eventually the younger generation becomes older and if they're persistent and recognize the objectives apart from their younger self objectives, uh, which is to make money so we can have a good time, uh, they realize that the only thing that is consistent in achieving any measure of success is that you must work hard to achieve it and that you must earn it. These days, we seem to have engineered the idea that success and all the trappings of success should be given without a cost, okay? That's sort of the communist view, isn't it? Kind of make everybody equal, give everybody the things that they want uh, without, you know, having the government provide for you in that respect, okay? Uh, you don't have to put out any maximum effort uh, to get there. Government's going to give it to you. We have somehow given the younger generation the idea that they should achieve greatness simply by being as mediocre and as complacent as they want to be, all right? That they don't have to put in that, that maximum effort. They've convinced themselves that they are deserving of money, uh, material things, the toys and the, and the living conditions and stations in life without first putting in the work and the years of work to achieve what they perceive now as success and what they will perceive as success later in life. And even their definition of what constitutes hard work has seemed to change, okay? Just ask Elon Musk, okay, and the former employees that he replaced, uh, you know, outright fired. Uh, ask those people what working hard is or, or what it was thought to be, all right? I bet you, I bet you their opinion has changed a little bit. Uh, but at some point, and I'm, I'm not you know, exactly sure when, but at some point we decided that if we didn't have a college education, uh, then we were destined to become stagnant or stuck in the rut that our parents were stuck in uh, and that we'd be that way for the rest of our lives if we didn't go to college. Okay? Uh, we'd never be greater than the generation before us unless we went to college. And we sold that lie to our children. And it just seems that I'm hearing it uh, and that, that sort of mindset in what Bishop was saying in answering the question that was posed to him. In my less than humble opinion, 
uh, listening to him today, all right, I would say that perhaps, you know, maybe from his perspective on a personal level, he can feel as though that he isn't successful or hasn't achieved a certain marker for success by not getting a college degree. But the fact that he seems to have found his talent, okay, and he's been able to apply the knowledge and skill that he's acquired over the years uh, and survive, okay, uh, with his, uh, what's, what's he calling it? Uh, waifu? Waifu? What the hell's, what the hell's a waifu? <laughs> what the hell's a, well, I'll look it up here. Um, ah, it's, it's, a, it's a Japanese word derived from the English word wife. Okay, so I guess we made that wife thing up. <laughs> uh, it says here, the meaning of waifu uh, in, 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 in some Japanese culture, I guess it's, it's pronounced waifu. Um, but in otaku culture, uh, waifu refers to a fictional character in anime. Um, uh, a fictional character that, that a fan of anime considers to be a wife or a husband. Waifu refers to a fictional character that an anime fan considers to be a wife or a husband. Okay. Anime. It's an anime thing. Yeah. Okay. But uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I never thought I'd be looking up the word waifu. Um, but, uh, you know, the fact that, that Bishop or guys like him, all right, uh, the fact that he's uh, done all of this, all right, and has survived, all right, and is making a good life for himself and his waifu, okay, it, to me that means he, he's successful, all right? He is successful, uh, and his successes can only grow uh, as long as he puts the effort into them, all right, into that foundation of success, all right? His already achieved successes, all right? Uh, in my mind, he didn't need to, uh, you know, to go to college. He didn't need a college degree to get there, all right? He, he, he got there, okay? Could he have gotten there quicker with a college degree? Could he have done something far greater with a college degree? Who knows? Maybe, all right? But dwelling on such questions is an exercise in the hypothetical, uh, you know, in my opinion, uh, until you initiate some sort of action, all right? The world as it is versus the world that you'd like to live in uh, or versus the world that you'd like to have, okay? And that's where many, not all, but many of the younger generations have it backward, okay? They think that they're entitled to the world that they want to have, without first affecting the world that they're actually living in, okay? Now, it, you know, don't get me wrong, folks, okay? I think colleges are great, all right? Although uh, they've recently become, you know, increasingly become cesspools of fascism, okay, uh, and groupthink that, uh, that I think really has had a negative effect on our kids, all right? The whole woke culture, all right? But uh, without higher education, I don't think America would have been the technological giant uh, that it became, all right? Uh, throughout human history, civilizations were built on the foundation of what came before, and man's determined will to use it not only for his benefit, but, but for the benefit of his family, uh, community, society, uh, a civilization, and ultimately, uh, humanity, okay? And 
your parents, your grandparents, your forefathers and mothers uh, are an integral part of that foundation that you're building on. Okay. Uh, And yet here we are at this point in time, still asking ourselves, what is success? What does success look like? And what can I do to achieve success? And it sounds like that at least with, 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 with a segment of the population and maybe even a specific generation that college degrees are paramount, a required ingredient in the formula of success. And I have to ask, is that because we've redefined success and what success is? And if we don't hit certain waypoints on the road to success, have we failed? Or do we simply have just maybe a little regret uh, for not having done a certain thing because we hadn't or, or, you know, we don't feel as though we're successful as we should be because we didn't do that thing. Okay. Uh, no, I, I, I think, I think success is subjective. Okay. Depending on what that person's uh, goals are, objectives are. Uh, but increasingly, I think that the, uh, the end you know, is, I guess the result, uh, you know, the instantaneous result of having everything that you would otherwise have because of hard work and time and uh, not necessarily a small degree of wisdom. Uh, I think everything that comes with, with, with all of that is, is kind of what the younger generations want right now. All right. And they haven't even put in half the time uh, to get there. All right. Uh, And I think that understanding these questions uh, and coming to a conclusion with regard to whether or not one is a success, uh, you know, we first have to understand that success and the road to it uh, is subjective. Okay, it isn't limited to or bound to one formula. All right. It's not bound to one metric. Okay, but we you know, we also have to realize that there is a standard based on what it is that we're doing at any given time, all right? And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, look, when guys, you know, enter the world, uh, you know, when we we leave childhood and have entered the realm of adulthood, uh, usually about the ages of 16 to 18 years of age, uh, you know, we're all about fun and having a party with friends, having a good time, all right? Uh, But I'm telling you, once you get on your own, it doesn't take long for many 20-somethings to recognize that there's a real world out there with real consequences for one's own actions and choices and decisions, all right? We get older, and we understand that we have obligations. We have real needs versus wants and desires, okay? Uh, we have to eat, okay? Our families have to eat. Uh, we recognize the need to have stability, and the ability to take care of the things that are inherent in life. And that recognition is embedded in the jobs that we do in life, all right? Uh, If we as parents are active in our kids' lives as much as we can be and have the occasional talk about what there is now and what's to come and talk with them about the fundamental things in life that can guarantee success and what success really means and what those standards are, then we will have honored our parents and will have achieved some measure of success in that we have imparted to the next generation a look at the future and their place in it. We hear all the time about chase your dreams or go after your dreams, you know, 
never stop trace, never stop chasing your passions, right? Uh, and I think we sometimes get that mixed up with our skills, uh, actual talents, uh, and the passion for applying those skills that come with time and hard work. All right, dreams and passions don't always lead to success, folks. All right, it doesn't always pay the bills. All right, it doesn't always feed your family. Taking advantage of an opportunity can, uh, and it can do it almost immediately. And you take advantage of each opportunity that comes along or the ones that you find, okay, assuming that you're looking, all right, uh, until you reach that place whereby you can accomplish the things that we talked about here. Uh, that's what we need to teach our kids, in, in my opinion, all right? Uh, it's, it's, it's just not enough. Um, and really, it's kind of misleading to tell people to chase or follow their dreams or passions. Uh, I, I think Mike Rowe, articulates it best in a short audio that he did for PragerU. Okay, now listen to this, listen to this clip, and I think you'll understand what it is that I'm trying to say here in a nutshell, folks. Okay, in the end, I find myself thinking, you know, he's not just talking about the job that we do in life. It's about life, okay, our happiness, our sense of accomplishment and fulfillment, which is what I'm going to get into in a minute here. But, but listen to this short uh, audio here, and you'll get what I mean uh, in what I've been saying here, okay? Uh, that would be clip there, okay. There are only two things I can tell you today that come with absolutely no agenda. The first is congratulations. The second is good luck. Everything else is what I like to call the dirty truth, which is just another way of saying it's my opinion. And in my opinion, you have all been given some terrible advice. And that advice is this, follow your passion. Every time I watch the Oscars, I cringe when some famous movie star, trophy in hand, starts to deconstruct the secret of their success. It's always the same thing. Don't let anyone tell you that you don't have what it takes, kid. And the ever popular, never give up on your dreams. Look, I understand the importance of persistence and the value of encouragement, but who tells a stranger to never give up on their dreams without even knowing what it is they're dreaming? I mean, how can Lady Gaga possibly know where your passion will lead you? Have these people never seen American Idol? Year after year, thousands of aspiring American idols show up with great expectations only to learn that they don't possess the skills they thought they did. What's really amazing, though, is not their lack of talent. The world's full of people who can't sing. It's their genuine shock at being rejected. The incredible realization that their passion and their ability had nothing to do with each other. Look, if we're talking about your hobby, by all means, let your passion lead you. But when it comes to making a living, it's easy to forget the dirty truth. Just because you're passionate about something doesn't mean you won't suck at it. And just because you've earned a degree in your chosen field, it doesn't mean you're gonna find your dream job. Dream jobs are usually just that. Dreams, but their imaginary existence just might keep you from exploring careers that offer a legitimate chance to perform meaningful work and develop a genuine passion for the job you already have. Because here's another dirty truth. Your happiness on the job has very little to do with the work itself. On Dirty Jobs, I remember a very successful septic tank cleaner a multimillionaire who told me the secret to his success. I looked around to see where everyone else was headed, he said, 
And then I went the opposite way. Then I got good at my work. Then I began to prosper. And then one day I realized I was passionate about other people's crap. I've heard that same basic story from welders, plumbers, carpenters, electricians, HVAC professionals, hundreds of other skilled tradesmen who followed opportunity, not passion, and prospered as a result. Consider the reality of the current job market. Right now, millions of people with degrees and diplomas are out there competing for a relatively narrow set of opportunities that polite society calls good careers. Now, meanwhile, employers are struggling to fill nearly 5.8 million jobs that nobody's trained to do. This is the skills gap. It's real, and its cause is actually very simple. When people follow their passion, they miss out on all kinds of opportunities they didn't even know existed. When I was 16, I wanted to follow in my grandfather's footsteps. He was a skilled tradesman, could build a house without a blueprint. That was my passion, and I followed it for years. I took all the shop classes at school. I did all I could to absorb the knowledge and skill that came so easily to my granddad. Unfortunately, the handy gene is recessive. It skipped right over me, and I struggled mightily to overcome my deficiencies, but I couldn't. I was one of those contestants on American Idol who believed his passion was enough to ensure his success. One day, I brought home a sconce I had made in woodshop. Looked like a paramecium. After a heavy sigh, my granddad gave me the best advice I've ever received. He told me, Mike, you can still be a tradesman, but only if you get yourself a different kind of toolbox. At the time, this felt contrary to everything I believed about the importance of passion and persistence and staying the course. But of course, he was right, because... Staying the course, that only makes sense if you're headed in a sensible direction. And while passion is way too important to be without, it is way too fickle to follow around. Which brings us to the final dirty truth. Never follow your passion, but always bring it with you. Congratulations again, and good luck. I'm Mike Rowe from MicroWorks for Prager University. Now, I think that sums up what I mean uh, by confusing, you know, actual skills, actual talents, and the passion for applying those skills that come with time uh, and hard work, uh, taking advantage of an opportunity, uh, and being able to build a stable, sustainable life for you and your family as a baseline standard of success versus the artificial, material, and virtual idea of success by chasing your dreams or your passions, okay? Uh, and you know, the realization and recognition of what all that entails. Okay. Uh, you know what it takes to realize a real success. Now, when I listened to Mike Rowe's audio video short here, I also found a, <laughs> a sort of response to what he had said. This is a group of individuals that call themselves the young Turks. Uh, and it, it, you know, they were responding to what Mike Rowe was saying, uh, and they were downplaying it. Uh, you know, it, it, their premise was that he's wrong, he's false, he's misleading. Um, and then, you know, the further you get into this, into this, uh, uh, this discussion that they have, they basically come to a point to where, where they say, well, he's not wrong. 
You know, it was the most asinine response to 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 Mike Rowe that I've ever seen. And I think that they they mischaracterized or tried to mischaracterize uh, and even misstated what he was actually saying and, and what he meant by saying it. OK, it was the weirdest damn thing. Uh, and this is where I think, you know, Matt, um, you know, from Guywire, I think his observation of the younger generation's penchant for putting people down uh, through social media was most observable here. Okay. It's almost like that they were denigrating Prager U, uh, just for the sake of putting a, a conservative outlet down, uh, with no real substance, uh, to, to, uh, to what they were doing and why they were doing it. All right. They didn't have a reasoned counter statement to it. All right. They, they, you know, they start out by saying it's false and it's wrong and it's misleading and all these other denigrating things about Prager U. But then they turn around and they have to say, well, he's not completely wrong. They look like total ass clowns uh, while denigrating Prager U. Okay. Uh, it's really weird. And, you know, there's a lot of people that listen to these people, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, take it face value for what they're telling you uh, other people are saying. Uh, listen to this horseshit attempt to respond to Mike Rowe. Uh, you know, I don't even think they tried to really give a reasoned counter to what Mike Rowe was saying on this video. I think they were just putting PragerU down uh, and Mike Rowe down just for the sake of doing it, you know? But l listen to this thing. Mike Rowe put out a commencement speech on a video for Prager University, and in it, he basically tells people, is it Prager, right? Yes, it, it is, is okay. but that's why it's funny. That's why it's oh, funny. Okay. Like, <laughs> Dennis Prager. Though. That's not a real university. That's not a real thing. There's some conservative dude who's that's like, oh, I will start uh, yeah. that. That's some like, jag off with a YouTube channel like me. That's all that is. <laughs> all right, so he puts out this commencement uh, video. It's a speech telling young people that they should not follow their passion. They should follow opportunity. Yeah, take okay, a look. Good. If we're talking about your hobby, by all means, let your passion lead you. But when it comes to making a living, it's easy to forget the dirty truth. Just because you're passionate about something doesn't mean you won't suck at it. And just because you've earned a degree in your chosen field, it doesn't mean you're gonna find your dream job. Dream jobs are usually just that, dreams. But their imaginary existence just might keep you from exploring careers that offer a legitimate chance to perform meaningful work and develop a genuine passion for the job you already have. Because here's another dirty truth. Your happiness on the job has very little to do with the work itself. So um, that is not a commencement speech. That's a <laughs> video that they put out for a, this ridiculous university. Uh, hey, Jimmy, yeah. would you like to do a commencement speech at Uyghur University? Uh, I'm changing it from Jank to Uyghur yeah. University. Yeah. The, the UU. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. The U of U. <laughs> I see the logo already. <laughs> All right, now let's get to the substance of this non-commencement speech at this non-university. Um, look, I, he's totally wrong. And, he's not <laughs> totally wrong. I, I Look, I hmm. don't... Interesting, okay. So you make your argument, and then I'll make mine. Okay, so um, I'll, I'll agree with him in one part in a second, too. But, yeah. uh, but the part that he's wrong about is... It, I, if you want to work hard enough to succeed at anything, then you've got to love it. And if you love it, then you'll be able to put in all those hours you need to succeed. 
It's not like I love it and then I sat on my couch and I didn't do anything about it. Yeah, that passion isn't going to get you anywhere because right. that's not a real passion. Mm -hmm. That's like, huh, that would be nice, right? Yeah. Okay, no, you yes. got to actually do it. But if you do it, then I think you have a better chance at success. Yeah, look, passion without ambition is a bird without wings, right? Was that beautiful? Oh, wow. my. The things you learn at I'm Duke University. That. Whoa. I read, it, I read it on a shirt once. Um, <laughs> I'm not kidding. But look, <laughs> I think. It's actually the motto for the U of U. <laughs> okay. I think that, um, look, in certain cases, he has a point, but unfortunately, he made a general statement that he's applying to everyone. So there are instances where you might be passionate about something, but you might not have the skill necessary to succeed in it, right? And you might say, all right, well, if you really work at it, you could succeed. But there are some cases where if you don't have the talent for it, you don't have the talent. And so you could do it for a hobby, but it's unlikely that you're going to make money from it. So let's say your dream is to be a singer. You're really passionate about singing, but you have a terrible voice. Yeah, you can go to singing lessons and you can try to improve, and you probably will improve, but not to the level where you're going to be a mega superstar making millions of dollars. Same for people who want to pursue acting. Every year, thousands of people come to Los Angeles because they want to pursue acting. It's what they're passionate about, but they don't succeed. And they might be really, really talented and really skillful in it, and they still don't succeed because there are other factors at play that stand in your way of succeeding, right? Especially in Hollywood, because you need to know people, you need connections. It's all about that, to be honest with you. But I will say that just because you're passionate about something and you're not succeeding in it for financial gain doesn't mean that you have to give up on it. You should absolutely still continue doing it, but you shouldn't throw away other opportunities that you might also kind of like and it could make you money, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm just trying to say. He's not completely wrong. If you're passionate about something, by all means, still pursue it. Like I'm passionate passionate about dance. I grew up doing ballet, point specifically. Mm -hmm. um, and Nobody I did puts it. baby in a corner. <laughs> <laughs> and I did it for 17 years, but I wasn't going to be a famous ballerina who made so millions that, of dollars. Like, come on. Are there any ballerinas that make millions no, of dollars? No, there aren't. So. Passion is not enough to sustain you, is what yes, you're saying. Yes, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And, yeah. And, I, and of course, I think that's true. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I would just point out is that everybody thinks I'm Mike Rowe. I, I honestly, <laughs> I, I get stopped all the time. Hey, you're that guy from Dirtiest Jobs. No, I'm not. I'm not. And it happened to me twice on a flight. Guy, and I'll tell you this quickly guy walks past and goes, hey, Mike. Nice to see you. Uh, I love your show. Did I go, hey, I'm not, I'm not micro, but he goes, yeah, I can see you are, but I. You know, <laughs> so, guy, guy walks by, then another guy comes right after him and goes, hey, micro. And I, I love him, big fan. I go, hey, man, I'm not micro, but another guy just made that same mistake. Pleasure to meet you. And, and he walks past, and then we're taxiing down the runway, and the guy comes running back up to me and goes, hey, Mike, don't worry. I'm not going to tell anybody you're on, your fly, on this flight. <laughs> Same guy, just would not believe that I wasn't Mike Rowe. So somehow there must be a similarity. <laughs> I love that we have Mike Rowe on the panel, and he won't even say defend his own video. <laughs> I mean, you got they dress alike. Look at the picture. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the, and the voice is kind of deep. I yeah. get it. I yeah. Get it. Oh, that sure. Mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. Hey, how are you? <laughs> ah, good to see you, Jack Uger. How are you? Of you. <laughs> I am. I am the dean of you of you. All right. No, I still I'm going to disagree with Anna. Uh, so yes, of course, it, you have to use some degree of judgment, right? So if you're five four, was Muggsy Bogues five four? At most, there was one NBA player who was five four. It is very, very, very unlikely that you'll be an NBA player. Yes, there are some things that you need some skill in and tremendous skill in. 
Uh, I'm not sure music is one of them. Uh, you just go under one of those underwater things. Oh, they model. They produce the hell out of every song. No one knows how they, how they sing anymore, right? Mm -hmm. So it's all in the production. Uh, actor, you're right. Half of them have connections already. Yep. So it's super hard to make it because that one is that one's daughter, and the other one's the director's son, and yada yada. On the other hand, I mean, there's some actors out there that you're like, they made it. So it's not all just like unbelievable acting skill. It's more effort going to all the different auditions, Look, doing all, all those things. All I'm saying is, living in LA, you cr you come across a lot of people that pursued acting and it's their passion, and I respect them tremendously for doing that, right? But they squandered other opportunities because they're like, no, I'm going to be an actor or actress, right? And then they end up, you know much older, working as a waiter or waitress, and they could have succeeded in another career and done the acting. And I know actors and actresses are going to get on me because they're like, no, that's all you can do. You have to treat it as your, your full-time job. Always go to workshops, always go to classes, always go on auditions, fuck everything else, right? But no, you need to have a plan B. That's what I'm trying to say. I think when you are artists generally, and I would consider actors and actresses artists, Yes. I think that is a driven first by a passion and that desire. And to be fair to all of all artists, it, it it must be very very difficult not to be able to pursue that passion. That and musicians, I also include. You know, it's tough to make a living as a musician yes. a lot of the time. You're playing weddings and bar mitzvahs, and you really want to be making different kind of music. Um, so I like taking the shot for your passion. Yes. But I think it's a fair point. You've got to accept life's realities and limitations. And maybe as Jenk says, you want, I understand you want to be a fashion model, but you're only 5'2 and you're a little overweight, you know, and you got to be <laughs> six feet tall and you got to be super thin. You know, maybe, the, I, look, I didn't set up the rules. That's just the way it is. So, you know, the runway is not for you. I think, can I just say, I agree. I, I, there's a lot to what Anna's saying. And, it, and it's uh, especially, but, but coming from someone like myself who did follow his passion, who did throw everything, caution to the wind, and was ridiculed by a lot of people, even... F when I told people in the comedy community in Chicago that I was moving to L.A., a lot of them shit on me, right? A lot of them tried to, you know, kick it out of you. Yeah, like, where tried, are they now? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In fucking Minnesota, sucking dick. That's where they are. <laughs> <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. Wow. Uh, yeah. doing That's a great state to do that. <laughs> yeah, doing corporate yeah. gigs and being squeaky <laughs> clean, doing shit they don't want to do. And I get to do exactly what I want to do, which is that's a win. So that's why it's tough for me. What he's saying is if you have a passion for something that you don't have talent for, find something else you have a passion for. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's like, hey, find a job that you don't like. And by the way, being a waiter or a waitress, I don't think is a tough job. Like I know guys like when I used to be a bricklayer before I was a comedian, and I remember working with these guys who were like 50 years old, 55 years old. I'm like, how the fuck do they do it? Like I was dead. I'm 23 years old. I'm coming home. Holy shit. And these guys are twice my age and yeah. everything. And so I'm sure they would much rather be in an air-conditioned place having food. And So I'm just saying that that's not that horrible of a job. I think that most jobs no, are horrible. I don't, think, I don't think, by the way, I'm not saying being a waiter or a waitress is horrible at all. Um, mm -hmm. Look, my fiancé is a bartender. I love him, and he enjoys his job, and that's all that matters, right? I'm just saying that don't squander other opportunities because you think that there's only one thing that you're passionate about. Sometimes you might find other things really interesting and really enjoy it. It's that, That's the thing about life, man. It is super hard to tell. It doesn't come with an instruction manual. But you got to try things. Try it. You'll yeah. like it. Like, you never know, right? Well, I used to say so, that when I was dating a lot. 
<laughs> so, in one of the things that uh, Roe talked about, uh, he it talked about a multimillionaire septic tank cleaner, right? And he said, I looked around and everybody else was headed one way and I headed the other way. Well, I love that kind of talk because yeah. he found his own way. And even if it might have been septic tanks, he made a great living out of it and, and he was happy to do that. But, and Anna, sometimes you're absolutely right, but it's so hard to tell when. Right. Because Jimmy followed his passion at work, I followed my passion at work. And so, you know, it's hard for me to tell someone else not to follow their passion. And by the way, I, I used to be a lawyer, and you, I think that was the world's worst job. I l remember literally thinking I would rather shovel shit for a living than to do this, because at least it's an honest day's work. Yeah. And, and, and so I left before the money set in, because and a lot of people said the same thing you're saying, said the same thing that they said to Jimmy, like, you're fucking crazy, you're making a lot of money, are you nuts? Now you're going to be a radio talk show host on the weekends, you idiot. Mm -hmm. And and so and I did. I struggled for 15 long years making terrible terrible pay. And but I believed. And 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 if you but it wasn't just believing. Believe me, that's the thing that I want you to focus on because whether you do what Anna's saying or what I say, <clears throat> what is absolutely essential is the hard work that comes with it. Yes. I, I sent my radio tape to 400 stations got two part-time jobs out of it. So if you're going to do it, do it all the way. That's that's my take on it. Well, mm -hmm. Here is the difference, right? So me doing stand-up comedy, uh, it didn't matter what they paid me. I was going to do it anyway. Like, you're going to pay me on top of this? Unfucking believable that I get paid to do this. Because I would pay them. You know, it's like, uh, hey, you want to come do a set at the improv? Yeah, how much is it going to cost me? You know, because that's, I would definitely pay them to do stand up comedy, but they pay me. It is unbelievable. So that's the thing. Like, if, if people who really do have passions, and even if they don't make a living out of it, I don't think they care that much because they get to do what they want every day. And to me, that's the most important thing. And it always was like, when I was a comedian, I was on the, I was making 500 bucks a week as an opening act, as a comedian, sleeping on couches in the middle of the fucking country. I thought I had it dicked. And I did, and I did, I really did, because I was super happy. I got to do my show every night. I was the center of attention. I still got to pay my bills. Ah, oh, it was the greatest, and I didn't have a job or a boss. I didn't give a shit. Oh, it was so great. So, so look, but here's the reality, you know, to, to the conversation we're having. Like, you aren't just passionate about one thing. You're passionate about comedy, but you're also passionate about doing what you do here. Yes. So I think most people are passionate about a lot of different things, but don't even really acknowledge it, right? So I'm super passionate about what I do here, obviously, but I'm also passionate about teaching, which is why as soon as I have an opportunity, I try to teach at universities and stuff. So I I'm passionate about yoga. I mean, if I had time, I would be a certified yoga instructor and do that as well. So just be open to different ideas because it's likely that you have more than just one passion. The last thing on passion is, the problem is oftentimes you can't make money at your passion. Yeah. And you're hearing from people who are lucky. Jimmy's made money. Jenks built an entire you know enterprise that uh, that has really fed his passion and also the passions of others. This is an extraordinary panel in that sense. Oftentimes, especially I get back to artists, musicians, whatever it might be, you have to pursue your art on the outside, mm -hmm. in addition to the practical opportunities that Mike Rowe talks about. You know, um, Mike Rowe made a tact that was a tactical move he made in his life, right? To go for the septic tank thing or whatever, you know. That's not a uh, passion of his. That was a assessing the market and going, this is, would be something that I could do well at. I mean, from a commercial standpoint, right? Yeah. 
then my passion is something else. Yeah. I'm just saying the two can often coexist. Oftentimes you can't make money at the passion. I suspect, you know, most of us can't make money at our real passions. It's amazing that he's still pretending not to be Mike Rowe. I know. I know. <laughs> okay, I, and, and he's right about that. Sometimes you can't make money at your real passions because no one will pay me to watch porn. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll leave it on the Jimmy Dore rule, right? So think about it that way. The minute I walked out of the studio, the first talk show I ever did, I thought, I'm doing that the rest of my life. I love that. So the door rule is I would pay to do that, right? If you're doing it, whether it's acting, music, whatever it might be, because you want to get famous or you want to get rich, but you don't love the, the craft of the acting journey. or music, etc., then you might want to rethink what you think your passion is. But if you do it for free anyway, you just love it to death and you're really honest with yourself and you're willing to do that 12 hours a day, 15 hours a day, even if you don't get paid, mm -hmm. then I would say follow your passion. But if you do, make sure you work your ass off at it. Can you believe what you were just listening to, folks? Can you believe all that? What you just heard was a bunch of libtards attempting to tear Mike Rowe down, to tear PragerU down. And the so-called discussion over what Mike Rowe was saying was a demonstration in being self-owned, really. Uh, you know, they were essentially agreeing with the guy that they just attempted to tear down. And, and, the, and they tried to make it seem as though what Mike Rowe was saying was all false and wrong, okay? It's a nothing discussion, folks. And following the break, I'm gonna talk about it, okay? That was the most ridiculous response to anything that I had ever heard in a long time, all right? Uh, and I'm gonna talk about it, so. Uh, we're already an hour in, folks. Time flies when you're having fun, doesn't it? So uh, take a break, make a sandwich, go pee, get some coffee. Get a cup of Cafe Du Monde coffee, folks. Make it the size of a Death Star, okay? And then we're going to come right back, uh, and then I'm going to tear these young Turks. Uh, according to the dictionary, young Turks being young progressives or insurgent members of an institution, movement, or political party. Young people who rebel against authority or societal expectations, uh, and really, from my perspective, for their own sake and without any substance whatsoever, right? I'm going to rip them a new ass. All right, because this was this was dumb. All right, Jenk Uger, Anna Kasparian, Jimmy Dory, Mark Thompson, uh, you know that that whole panel from from the Young Turks. Okay, you know what's funny? Uh, <laughs> with the exception of Anna Kasparian, not one of these jokers on this panel looked to be young. In fact, they looked old as shit. All right, they're all old, like me. <laughs> Irony can be so ironic sometimes. Uh, I'll be right back, folks. Booyah! 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 A lot of times, the fact that you don't feel successful can really put you in a bad place mentally as far as guys go. And I'm sure females, it works the same way, but I can't speak for you because I'm not one. This, I know so often people, their definition of success is not through their own eyes, it's through the eyes of others. Right. Do people see me as, as successful? And that's how they judge their success. Yeah. 
bergère d'azur infinie. Life gets a lot easier when you stop giving a fuck what anybody else thinks. So the way I feel, I could walk out and get hit by a car and know full well that I've been happy with what I've done with my life. Um, I'd have new hires that would show up late to their interview, not new hires, but uh, interview candidates that would show up late to their interviews and wonder why they didn't get the job. You know, I heard something. I, I, I heard something a while ago that, that stuck with me, and it just popped into my head. Is somebody told me a long time ago, dress for the job you want, not the job you have. That's why I love it when the first ladies wear a black dress. Well, I can't go in. I can't go in dressed as Batman. That's the job I want. <laughs> yeah, that is yeah. the job I, I would love to go be Batman. Society has both evolved and de-evolved so much where it was when you were 18 you moved out of the house you bought your own your own home by the time you were like 21 you had a career by the time that you were 30 you had been you know in, your, in that job role for 10 years and it's not possible now especially post-pandemic there are people out there who will pay you what you're actually worth because they are hurting for employees so bad because of what the pandemic has done to the job. True. However, there's also an influx of people who have an inflated value of what their worth is. As a manager, I saw this from new hires is they didn't want to work. They just wanted to show up, punch their time clock, hang out for eight hours, mm -hmm. and then go home and get a paycheck. Have you seen the meltdown uh, that a Starbucks employee put on their uh, their TikTok and their social media saying, I don't know, I'm only one of seven people here today, and they've made me work an eight-hour shift, and I don't know how I'm going to mentally recover from this. Should you be measuring success, or should you be measuring your happiness? Are we asking the right question? Life doesn't owe you shit. Nobody owes you shit. Dad. <laughs> Whatever. What do you drink in the mornings, folks? I bet for most of you that it's coffee. It's the gift from God, right? Like bourbon and beer, coffee is proof that God loves us. He gave us bourbon and beer in the evenings for when we celebrated our days, gathered with old friends, and this goes back as far as when our founding fathers met at the local tavern to celebrate the successful offloading of the King's Tea into the Boston Harbor, right? And he gave them coffee so that they could recover and wake up in the morning. Now, if you're like me, folks, you're pretty particular about your bean juice, okay? You can't make it too stiff, but you also don't want something that tastes like hot water with a brown crayon dipped in it, right? As a well-rounded connoisseur of the caffeinated black gold, folks, you gotta make sure that the grind isn't too coarse, and you gotta make sure that it's not too fine either. Use a medium blend coffee if you like the warm roasted flavors that have very little acidity to it. Okay? Or use the darker single origin kind if you like your coffee to punch you in the face at 6 a.m. Now, I do like my coffee to be pissed off and wearing boots when it kicks me in the ass in the morning. All 
right? But good coffee shouldn't be bitter. There ought to be flavor that allows for the pleasant, let's get this job done disposition of the day instead of the I hate everybody and everything attitude that you wake up with. I suggest a coffee and chicory blend in the mornings. And that's why I recommend one brand that I drink every day. When I first tried it, it became a fast favorite. And that's why I recommend Cafe Du Monde. Now, Cafe Du Monde is a New Orleans blend coffee served at the Cafe Du Monde located in the French market since the 1860s. It's almost as old as I am. And I've been around folks, so I know my coffees. The chicory adds just that bit of natural flavor uh, that you like instead of that syrup shit that Starbucks pours into your brown sugar water on your way to work. So make that first cup of caffeinated goodness from God. Try not to punch people in the face and let people live in the morning and get the job done. And remember, if you got good bean, you got good coffee. And if you like good coffee, you're gonna love Cafe Du Monde. Punch yourself in the face. <laughs> punch yourself in the face. All right, he doesn't know what he's doing. You fat, so punch yourself in the face. <laughs> I did good, Meg. Shut up. I did good. I did good. That's what my coffee does to me in the morning, folks. Punch yourself in the face. <laughs> oh, I love it. What you heard during the break, folks, was uh, sound bites of the Guy Wire podcast starring Matt Knight, Kevin Bishop, uh, and Chris Andrews of the Guy Wire podcast fame. Always entertaining and always just barely staying on the rails of any particular subject they're talking about. Uh, Guy Wire podcast. Uh, it's everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor FM, uh, anywhere you can download podcasts. You know, Matt and I go back a few years, uh, back in our Iraq days, and um, incidentally, uh, that that episode that I've referenced a few times here, uh, what is the measure of success, uh, is the inspiration behind this episode here at The Last Stand. Uh, and uh, incidentally, uh, Matt is actually the inspiration uh, behind me doing this podcast. Um, so uh, what is the measure of success? Um, you know, uh, that's allegorical, I would say, but, uh, uh, he's the reason that I'm doing this show today. And, uh, maybe I can get Matt in, uh, on this show today. Um, if not, if not today, if not this episode, then the next episode. So what were we talking about? We were talking about the young Turks and how they were, um, completely <laughs> asinine uh, in their characterization of PragerU and uh, of Mike Rowe and Mike Rowe's commentary on pursuing your passions or chasing your dreams uh, in lieu of the opportunities uh, and the sense of fulfillment uh, that, you know, the real world and real work uh, can give you, right? Uh, Jank Uger 
Anna Kasparian, Jimmy Dory, Mark Thompson, uh, the Young Turks, okay? So these so-called Young Turks, okay, Anna Kasparian in particular, uh, attempt to um, kind of, oh, I don't know, kind of counter what Mike Rowe was saying uh, on this on this audio commentary that he did for PragerU. And I think that uh, by the end of the episode, all right, of the Young Turks there, um, I think it was proven that Mike was right. I, they end up agreeing with, with Mike Rowe, okay? Um, it was really kind of an asinine episode. But uh, Anna Kasparian in particular, all right, the, the issues that I had with what she was saying, that's where I'm going to start here, okay? Uh, the, the things that Anna Kasparian and, and, the, and then uh, the rest of them, when they, when they chime in, okay, with their idiocy, okay, uh, they chime in. But I'm going to start with uh, what Anna Kasparian was talking about, all right, with some of her statements. You know, she says Mike makes a general statement that he applies to everyone, okay? No, he didn't do that. He didn't make a general statement that he applied to everyone, all right? But it did apply to the majority of people working in this country. And the statistics prove it, folks, all right? Look at the number of people working. And the overwhelming majority of those people will tell you that the job that they're doing now is not the dream job that they imagined they'd, they'd be able to have, all right? How many people do we have to listen to uh, who borrowed money for a degree in some damn thing or another uh, that, you know, that they're not doing right now, that they're not, you know, that's the, they don't have that job that they got that degree for, all right? And instead, they're working a job that they need to work to help make ends meet, all right? How many people out there borrowed that money for that degree and are now demanding that we forgive them their obligation and financial responsibility to pay those loans back because they're not doing the job that they dreamed of doing. They're not doing the job that they got those college degrees for, that they had to borrow that money for. The numbers of people who actually get their dream job, right, uh, chase their passion and are able to make money off of that are quite few in comparison to the rest of the working world, you know? And then she starts agreeing with what Mike says, okay? She, she wants to disagree with him, okay? She makes, makes a small nothing point, but then starts agreeing with what Mike Rowe is saying. And did, did you notice the, the, the dream jobs that she chose to use in her narrative, folks? Singer, actor, actress, dance, that sort of thing. It's quite telling, isn't it? She then attempts to make it sound like Mike Rowe said to throw away those dreams and passions, okay? Uh, I, I think they all tried to make it sound that way. You shouldn't, you know, their, their point being, you shouldn't throw away those things. You can still pursue them. A and then she continues to make Mike, Mike's point. Pursue something that is going to make you money and where you might find a passion and joy in the, in the thing that's making you money. That is precisely what Mike was saying. The difference is too many people pursue the thing that they ought not be pursuing, uh, you know, losing their asses over it, over that passion or over that dream, okay? Too many people are, 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 are chasing that dream job, you know, with dream money, okay? And meanwhile, back at the ranch, they're passing up opportunities to other seemingly less than desirable jobs 
and whole industries could be suffering from it. Okay, hence the difficulties that employers are talking about now uh, when they say they can't find people to fill the jobs these days. Now, now there's more to that, okay, than what I'm saying here. That's a whole other segment. Don't get me started on that whole thing, okay, because it goes back to COVID. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> these guys in this video, the, these people with these young Turks, okay, the young Turks here, okay, these guys ended up making Mike Rowe's argument for him. Okay, they, they totally agreed with it. In my opinion, these, this, this, this panel of, of people here on the Young Turks, total ass clowns, okay? Because after she makes her, her main point, okay, it's nothing, all right? It's, it's a bunch of vapid storytelling about how dude gets mistaken for Mike Rowe, okay? <laughs> Personal anecdotes about going after the passion, uh, you know, your dream job, like being a comedian who moved him, you know, who was moving from from Minnesota. OK, how people shit on him for moving to L.A. or wanting to move to L.A. You know, where are those guys now sucking dick in Minnesota? What a friggin prick that guy is. Jimmy Dory never heard of her. OK, he's criticizing people for the same thing, for doing the same thing that he's doing to Mike Rowe. OK, uh, you know, he's, he says that doing what you want to do in life is all that matters. No, it's not. Maybe for him, that was a lucky circumstance where he could do exactly what he wanted to do. He worked his ass off to get there. Okay? Uh, but in the world, in the working world, uh, you know, chasing your passion, okay, isn't something that's always going to feed you. All right? The practical uh, employment will. Okay, and you might just discover that you have a passion for doing that job that feeds you and feeds your family. You know, Mike wasn't saying throw your dreams away. He was saying that we shouldn't throw opportunities away for that one thing that statistically speaking, you may not ever get to do. And the, and the passion in you that comes from working hard at something and doing really well at something that you would never imagine that you'd be doing might just offer you greater opportunities. And give you a sense of fulfillment. Some people ought to rethink their positions before spouting off on some friggin' video. In an obvious attempt to tear someone who knows a thing or two about work down. To be honest, just listening to that segment, I don't know why these people have a video blog or a video podcast or, or whatever it is that they're doing. I don't know why they do it at all. Okay, if you're going to ridicule a position uh, like they did. If you're going to ridicule a guy like Mike Rowe like they did, and Prager you like they did, you better have all the guns, okay, and all the firepower to back it up. Otherwise, you're bringing a squirt gun to a knife fight, and you're going to get cut. And they did. They totally, it's like they owned themselves. You know what I mean? They, they totally made Mike's argument. You know, bottom line, I think that the guys at Guy Wire have it nailed down pretty good, guys. Okay. Now, now the other thing that I noticed when I listened to the show was that the idea or recognition of what success is uh, was deeply connected to the work that they did uh, or had done or do. Okay. I do that too. I think that as men, we automatically associate the success that we recognize in life to our jobs. All right. What we do for a living and how we do it, uh, you know, that whole thing. Work, what we do. Uh, for our benefit and development and growth uh, is tied to our ideas 
of success. What we're able to do with our work lives is tied directly to our idea of what success is. How many times are I going to say it? But there's, there's another aspect to all that, that, that we really don't talk a whole lot about. And I just basically just touched on it a minute ago. Okay. And that's the sense of accomplishment in contributing to something greater than ourselves. And that can be family and it often is, but it can also be an idea. All right. A mission or a purpose being part of a team whose individuals contribute to something greater than the individual part that they would otherwise play. Okay. The sense of accomplishment and the fulfillment of doing something worthwhile is tied to success. I always say, no matter what it is that you're doing, strive to be the best at it. Strive to do the best job and to be better at it than anyone else who came before you. Now, will, will, will you be the best? Maybe. It's certainly possible. Okay? Especially if you take it and make it your own. Look, I never in my life thought that I'd be doing any, anything other than surveillance operations as an investigator. Okay? Until I was forced to think that I might have to do something other than surveillance operations as an investigator. All right. You know, I, I was, I was pretty damn good at it folks. Okay. And I worked my ass off for it. Okay. It was my passion. It was my dream. All right. And I was really great at the operations part. Okay. But as a, as a business guy, all right, running the finances, writing the checks, uh, you know, getting the work and producing the product, uh, you know, running everything. Okay. I wasn't good at doing everything to ensure that I can make a living off of it. Okay. The administrative side of things in business. All right. As an operator and being able to produce a product and leading teams and, and being successful at the operations. Okay. I was great. All right. As the administrative figurehead, uh, and, 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 you know, business guy working the actual business side of things, I wasn't that great. And I hadn't learned enough. And I didn't know enough and I didn't have anything else to carry me through while I figured it all out. So when business started to drop off during the Obama years, uh, I was faced with having to make a change, a practical change. Okay. Not the one I wanted to make. It's the one I had to make. All right. I had chased the passion. I worked the passion. I loved the passion. All right. I loved that dream of being an investigator and doing it for a living. But the dream didn't love me as much as I had hoped it would. <laughs> so I had to change. Okay. Uh, and that's really a tough thing to do, folks, because I didn't know anything else. You know, I had to find something to eat uh, at that point. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I had to find something to eat and I had, you know, uh, had to find a way to make a living and then hope that I'd like doing it. Next thing you know, I'm working here. All right. Where, where I'm working now. All right. Basically, as a manager and a facilitator uh, at two different locations now. All right. The pay's great. Uh, it's steady, stable. Uh, and I, I thoroughly enjoy the responsibilities that I have. OK. I basically created a job for myself simply simply by doing what people needed me to do at the time that, that it needed to get done. And I made it mine. OK. I turned it into something that means something to other people. Okay. And that my friends is where I found the passion for the job that I'm doing now. Being able to be the guy that people call when, you know, something needs to be fixed or a job needs to be done and doing it and, you know, doing it better than anybody else and getting the job done. 
you know, especially the seemingly impossible job, okay, and having people appreciate the job that I do, okay, because it affects their day-to-day. I love doing that, okay? If I'd been stubborn and had waved off the opportunity to do something that I had never really wanted to do in the first place, I would have missed out on all the great things that I can do now, all the things that I'd learned how to do over the last several years. And I never would have met some of the greatest people that I've ever had the pleasure of working with all these years later. In this job uh, that I never wanted in the first place, I had found fulfillment, accomplishment, and that became my passion. And I think that when you take an opportunity to do a thing that you never really wanted to do in the first place, something that means something to people, and you make it your own, and you find a passion in it, and can make a decent living at it, and feed your family, and take care of your family because of it, that is a measure of success. It is success. If you can chase a dream and go after it, and survive trying to get there, and then make a decent living doing it, then you're one of the lucky ones. But if you're struggling to achieve that, okay, you may be one of the thousands and thousands of people who are finding out that the dream or chasing the dream is causing more hardship than success. And that an opportunity to do something completely different might just be waiting for you. And in that, the sense of fulfillment and accomplishment that comes from that opportunity just might turn out to be your passion. And in that, you are as much a success as any one in a million person who caught the dream they were chasing. You know, celebrities are famous for saying things like chase your dreams and don't let anyone tell you that you can't chase your dreams. That's what Mike Rowe said. And it's true because they made it and have found their measure of success in that. Well, I'm telling you, don't miss an opportunity to take an opportunity to find passion in something completely different, folks. You might just discover that the dream job is the one you weren't chasing. And the passion that comes with getting out of it what you put into it is the success that you were looking for all along. Sans me dire 
Un seul mot et je ne comprends pas, comprends pas C'est un jour comme un autre Mais moi j'ai mal de toi Moi qui riais des autres Aujourd'hui C'est vous deux qui devez rire de moi, rire de moi Toi, tu prends à jamais Tu me prends la vie et même un peu plus Tu me prends l'amour C'est un jour comme un autre Et pourtant tu t'en vas Et pourtant tu t'en vas Et pourtant tu t'en vas Welcome back to the show ladies and gentlemen Uh, you were listening to uh, Bridget Bardot and Un Jour Comme Un Autre, A Day Like Any Other. Um, I think I just butchered the French on that. <laughs> uh, but I, it's one of my, one of my uh, faves. Um, you'll notice that the, uh, you'll notice the jazz-inspired melody there. Um, and like I said, America may have invented jazz, but the French made it irresistible. At least to me, folks. So, uh, moving like the wind, folks. Uh, as I said earlier, Matt Knight, Kevin Bishop, Chris Andrews uh, of the Guy Wire fame uh, kind of inspired me to talk about success in this episode. Uh, and I said earlier that I was going to try and get Matt Knight on the show. And uh, as you all know, I'm a man of my word. I'm a man of my word. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, Matt Knight of the Checkmate with Bishop and Knight fame and the Guy Wire fame. Uh, Matt, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, this is your first appearance uh, here on The Last Stand. Uh, the first appearance out of what I will hope will be uh, many guest appearances here in the future. Yeah, buddy. I'm talking about success and I'm talking about your last episode. You know, I listen to the guy wire when I want to kind of take a break from the usual political commentary that I engage in. Uh, and, and of course, you know, uh, or I know, uh, that you've done more than one podcast, right? One, more than one podcast show. Um, yes, but, sir. But, but the guy wire seems to be the one podcast that you do, uh, even more so than Checkmate, in my opinion, uh, that speaks to the serious topic without taking it too seriously. Basically, from my perspective, it's three guys uh, that engage in conversation about what the mundane thing may be at the time uh, or the serious topic uh, that, that, might be, uh, that you might be discussing uh, from a guy's perspective. But it also speaks to something about the guy's perspective that reveals an undercurrent of something more serious in your conversations without being so serious in tone. Uh, what, what was the idea uh, behind the guy wire? And is there an objective or reason for doing uh, a podcast like the guy wire? So really, it came out of sort of necessity, I guess you would say. Um, the, the podcast is and continues to be my outlet. It's, I, I guess, an art to me, so to speak. Uh, I may not be the best at it, uh, but I enjoy my work. Right. I believe that, uh, you know, 
the most important thing for you to do is the thing that's important to yourself. And when I got into this, it was just a, a just a, a thing that was kind of bigger than me, putting yeah. my voice out there and just letting the world have the opportunity to hear it. Uh, Mr. Kevin Bishop, who started the Checkmate with Bishop and Knight podcast with myself, went through a bunch of life changes, career changes, relationship changes to where his availability just wasn't such to where he and I could get together um, as much as I really needed to. Right. Uh, and it turned out that Chris, uh, Chris and I connected as fate would have it um, after, you know, probably a couple of years of uh, we were coworkers at one time. And then we just kind of reconnected as friends again because some some different life events that put us in a place where we could you know, have, have time to kind of hang out and be guys more. Right. And he, he had mentioned that he really enjoyed doing the episodes that we did with, with him. Mm-hmm. And so we said, well, let's, uh, let's shoot something, you know, come up with an idea. I'm open to anything. I've got the studio that's sitting down here gathering dust. And we came up with the first episode of uh, celebrating men's mental health during men's mental health month. Right. Um, and we didn't have a, have a name for the podcast at the time. I don't think, I think we kind of brainstormed in the days after we, uh, we recorded that, that first episode about men's mental health and the importance of it, how it's often overlooked. And we decided that, you know, guy wires, you know, it's a cool thing because we're two guys. We're talking about stuff that affects guys in general. And we put a certain degree of cynicism, cynicism in there with it, along with, um, the dick and fart jokes, the stuff that all guys talk about, the, lo- the <laughs> locker room talk, the uh, just the, the the base dumb guy humor um, yeah. that that people seem to have so far kind of responded to, yeah. um, and talked about you know, the you know some of the the, the, tr- the trials and tribulations, so to speak, that go overlooked that affect men's mental health, along with yard work and grilling and good whiskey and. It just seemed to be something that really works because um, it comes, you know, be, being a guy is natural. Um, learning to talk about being a guy was the the piece that we kind of had to to work on. Right, right. So, 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 guy wire is simply geared to just being a guy uh, and and going through life. F- and and looking at all of that through the through the lens of being a being being a guy. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really it. Awesome. What uh, so what led you to uh, the episode success? What 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 spawned that idea about success? Because when I, you know, when I listened to that episode, all right, it, it was good, and it, it like I said, it actually inspired me to do this episode. And this is this is something that. Uh, this is a topic of discussion that I don't spend uh, an entire episode on. You know, um, it's not the normal or, or the per usual thing uh, that I talk about here. So, so what inspired the episode behind uh, what is the measure of success? So that was that was one hundred percent Kevin Bishop. Uh, he 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 keeps a kind of a running list of ideas, but generally it's something that's really important to him or he really wants an outside perspective on, on the subject matter. And he pitched us a couple of, of ideas and I'm like, well, I think Chris and I kind of both landed on let's, let's do the, what is, you know, what is success or what does success mean to you? Um, where we just talk about, you know, what our measure is and the conversation just kind of evolved from, we're just talking about success to, 
what is what does it mean to be successful? Do you consider yourself a success? And how do you, how does one personally measure success? And we kind of found that three of us had very different views on how we uh, appreciated or saw that we were a success or how we see someone else being a success or being successful. So, you know, you, you're saying that you guys had some very different, um, some very different outlooks on what success is. All right. But, but, but the, you all agreed uh, on the idea or the fact that all three of you were successful in life to this point. Is that, is that fair to say? I think to a degree, I think, uh, I think Kevin Bishop really beats himself up a lot more than Chris or I. And we talked that after the episode, Chris and I both, and we think that just boils down to the age difference. Chris is 42. I'm coming up on my 38th birthday here in a couple of months. And Kevin Bishop is closer to that, uh, that I think 32 or 33 mark. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a wildly different person than I was even, you know, even at 35 years old. Yeah. Um, there, there's a, there's a lot of uh, growing up, a lot of things that, that kind of really change during that, uh, that, that mid thirties, I guess, um, or at least that Chris and I could come up with that personal experiences and, and just views on, on life really kind of change about that 35 mark. Yeah. And, and and I actually speak to some of what Kevin Bishop was saying uh, about the measure of success. Um, and, and I got that, too, from from that episode that he was kind of beating himself up to a degree. But it was it was based on his idea of what the roadmap to success looked like or, or what people had told him uh, that, you know, that the road to success should look like. Right. Um, yeah, and I think uh, I think part of that too, if you don't mind me interjecting, yeah. is is Kevin uh, is a he's very close with his family. Yeah, My, myself and Chris, other than the family that lives in our houses, yeah, we're not that close. I'm not that close with my parents uh, really anymore. I mean, we do talk. Yeah, um, Chris, his family was was pretty spread out. I think his dad lives in uh, Kansas City. Um, he lived in San Diego for a while. His mom moved. Uh, out here for a few years um, before she passed away. So, I mean, his wife and kids, that's really the only family that he kind of talks to. And I think Kevin is still in the mindset of he's doing a lot of things that he thinks would make his family proud rather than would make himself, uh, you know, proud or feel successful or fulfilled as as we kind of, kind of equated in that episode. So, so he's kind of maybe... Maybe his idea of success is is uh, kind of meeting the expectations of other people, family, or wh- whomever it may be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you and I have grown up in some very different times, um, and we grew up with different experiences uh, in different times that shaped our outlook on things like culture and work. Uh, philosophies and thoughts about our respective generations' efforts to achieve success uh, and what that looks like and what's required to achieve it. <clears throat> you know, as I listened to the episode, I heard a lot of what I think was criticism of the latest generation or even your own generation. Uh, was this episode, uh, did, did you intend for it to be kind of a criticism of, say, your own generation? Or, or, or any generation, really? Uh, that was not the intent. 
I, I do think uh, that sort of where we, we wound up is kind of, uh, and, and I hate to say it, uh, kind of mad at the world in some respects. Yeah. <laughs> just because of, of, of the way that, that, you know, life has kind of conspired uh, through through a, a couple of, you know, odd political times, economic times. I mean, we go, you know, as a 90s kid, we went through some of the best times growing up to a housing market crash, to 9-11, to, you know, the hyperinflation that we're dealing with now. I'm making more money in my entire life than I ever had, and it's harder to, to make ends meet. Do, so do, I think that's, do, do you think 9-11 and... Uh, some of those other things that you talk about, uh, you know, the housing market during the 90s. Do, do you think that time frame uh, had an effect on how your generation or the younger generations look at work or a work ethic or a measure of success? I don't know if I can, if I can put my finger on that. I think the rise of social media has been the biggest detriment to uh, what I look at is, is the possible impending fall of society. Right. Uh, everybody views online as being reality when that's not the case. Nobody goes outside anymore. I, I know kids that don't know how to ride a bike right. at the age of 10. <laughs> and growing, gr- growing up to me, that, that, that was unheard of. You, yeah. know, you can't ride a bike? What the hell? Right, right. That's, uh, that's, that's kind of how, how in some ways uh, how I think of social media these days. It's It's kind of a dual-edged sword it can be a very good thing uh and but certainly it can be kind of a bad thing too now would you say that the expectations and views regarding work or even success of today's generation might be the result uh or a fault of not not just social media but maybe from previous generations uh, and what they sold to their kids. Because I, I talk about that in the podcast, too. We kind of sold a few things to, my generation did. We sold a few things to kids uh, growing up at the time uh, that, you know, one of the things that uh, Kevin Bishop talks about is college. We, we sold them the idea that college was everything, you know? Oh, yeah, that, that's what I grew up with was, you know, you have to go to college or, or you'll ne- never be anything. Yeah. And I think that I fought with a long time, um, even even after I got out of the army, uh, went you know went went overseas, had a deployment under my belt, um, fought for my country. It right. still kind of bothered me that I never went and finished my degree. And then I figured out that you don't have to have a degree to make money, and the people with a degree that are making money are still having to use that money to go back and pay for that degree. Yeah. Um, you know, we were sold the lie of the hole in the ozone layer, and then there was global warming, and now it's climate change. <laughs> yeah. uh, the climate is always changing, okay? We went yeah. through an ice age. We went through the heating and cooling of the earth. The poles flip every 100,000 of years. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not a climate change denier. I'm saying it's absolutely true, but it's not the impending death that is being pushed on everybody. Do, do you think that that... Uh, you know, uh, your generation or maybe the latest generation, you know, I don't even keep track of the names anymore. What is it? Gen Z. Uh, do you think that, that your generation and and today's kids uh, have latched onto that thing? And do you think that it's going to have uh, an effect on what their idea of what their idea of work and success uh, in life is going to be. Do you think? Do you think latching on to things like climate change, and and the doomsday machine that that it's turned out to be, 
do you think that's going to have an effect on these younger kids? Without a doubt. Yeah. Um, we, from what I see, just, even with some people around my age and even older, we've become a society of a society of victimhood, a victimhood mentality to where uh, mm-hmm. mental health and bad experiences and the things that set you apart from everybody else is a badge of honor. Yeah. Uh, you know, pe- people can't show up to the office because of, uh, you know, ang- social anxiety, yeah. uh, the fear of being around other people, which was only further uh, bastardized by COVID. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the whole, well, I'm, I, every, the people that won't let go of wearing the mask, even though it's been proven that it neither helps nor detracts from your uh, likelihood to get a virus of such, uh, such type. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It, it, it's it's and through social media, it's the kids that are getting that were getting bullied. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a badge of honor to be different, and you can't bully kids now. And and it's it's really, I hate to say it, it's it's made people soft. Yeah, and now being soft is celebrated. Yeah, that it's sort of like uh, what's that? What's that axiom? Uh, hard times create mm-hmm. soft times. Hard, uh, uh, good, good men are strong. Was it strong men? Hard, good men, men? Hard, hard men create good times. Good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. Yeah, that's that's the one. <laughs> that's the one I was thinking of. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of that. Um, do you think that it's going to be? Uh, you know, as they get older, you know, I've always said, you know. Because, I mean, honestly, my generation was no different. Um, we're, we're all kind of, you know, each generation is kind of similar to the, to the next generation in that, you know, when we're all young, you know, we think we know it all, right? We, mm-hmm. we, we think we got the answers to everything and we got everything wired. Um, you know, but as you get older, and, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, as you got older and as you get older, you kind of understand a little bit better about how the real world works. Right. Uh, and what that means in terms of your success in life. Right. Do you think that, you know, with, with Gen Z, uh, the younger kids today, um, you know, do you think that they're going to maybe someday realize or recognize the wisdom of older generations, uh, more so than maybe perhaps we did, uh, or do you think that they'll continue to make, you know, demands for unrealistic salaries and, and, and unrealistic working conditions uh, and all of that, uh, you know, because of and because of that, we're going to see the industrialized world here and the real work in the world uh, suffer from from this unrealistic idea of what work and how the world works and w- what their levels are of success seem to be or what, what their per- perception of what success is going to be. Do you think that that's going to change as they get older? Or do you think they're going to be stuck uh, right where they are? You know, that's the, that's the scary thing to me is I, I think we've already, we're already seeing that. Uh, everybody's too proud to go work an entry level job. Uh, yeah. Everybody demands the $15 an hour minimum wage. Yeah. And you know, that's not, that's not what it is. I mean, you don't, you don't, if you're working an entry level job, you don't even know what work ethic is yet. Right. And that as, as a good evaluation from an employer, they have to figure out what you're worth. 
Yeah. And you can't just say I'm worth this amount. Right. Uh, I, I see it, you know, now that, that, you know, we've, we've been in and out of, you know, the pandemic, people still uh, can't keep employees. They can't find people to fully staff their restaurants. And yeah. most of that, most of those is entry level jobs, your pizza, your pizza joints, your fast food joints. And that's causing them to, now that the technology is there and fairly affordable, they're making a lot of things autonomous. Even You've got Teslas that can drive themselves. Why can't you have a robot that flips a fucking burger, right? Right. <laughs> well, uh, I, and, so, and you're absolutely so, right about that because I'm, I talk to contractors a lot um, and a lot of uh, guys that do, you know, the dirty jobs out there. And they say the exact same thing. They can't find anybody uh, to fill the entry-level positions to a job that actually could turn out to be a pretty lucrative career for them if they stick with it. You know what I mean? They, they can't find yeah. anybody. And they, and they attribute that to exactly what you said. You know, during the COVID times, right, we paid people to stay at home. Uh, you know, and about that time, uh, we were also, I don't know, for whatever reason, uh, you know, people were starting to demand you know, $15 or more, you know, to flip burgers at McDonald's, you know, uh, and, and the real world doesn't work that way. And real jobs don't work that way. And that, that's, I'm hearing the exact same same, same thing, brother. Uh, they can't fill even the entry level positions to jobs that could actually turn out to be very lucrative, uh, and, and very good, uh, for a lot of these kids growing up today. Yeah, but back to your point of, you know, do I think that, you know, Gen Z or the current generation, whatever their, whatever nomenclature they're calling themselves, are they going to realize that they're, you know, there might have been some wisdom of the father that they didn't follow or wish that they had? Yeah. I just hope that there's something left. Yeah. You know, I hope that there's, there's a, you know, a, a society or a world that is not 100% dependent on the U.S. government to tell you how to live, where to live, you know, uh, what water to drink, what time of day to eat, uh, in, in exchange for a, a monetary handout every month. Yeah. And I, th I think that individual freedoms are gradually being traded for financial gains. For, and that's scary to me. For, for uh, the creature comfort, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and and what, I, I can't remember who, who the, the person is that, that said the phrase. It's like, uh, one day uh, you'll own nothing and like it. And yeah. it seems like we are approaching that. Do, do you think that your generation worries about it just as much as mine does? Because <laughs> I, yeah, I, yeah. I'm going to tell you, I worry about it a lot. And I, I'll tell you, I don't know if you feel this way, uh, but I find myself in these later years here, um, I find myself sounding more and more like my dad or like my grandfather's uh, every time, you know, every yeah, year. You know, I, I can't tell you if, if I do or don't think that my generation worries about that because I feel like that they worry so much more about everything else. What's on TV, who's getting eliminated from the bachelorette, who's yeah. talking about them on social media. Mm. Um, rather, and, and there are a lot of older professionals too, retired doctors and lawyers that seem to be the ones out here handling for a certain ideal that nobody can afford, but they can. Yeah. 
they've already made their money. They have their retirement. They have their house paid for. They have trust funds for their grandkids. Yeah. So they are voting for legislation that is not supportive of the majority of the population and what's good for them. Yeah, so, so they kind of forgot. You think they forgot where they came from? Either that or they're from a, a such a lineage where everything was paid for them and they are doing as their parents did. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I think you and, and, and the guys there at the Guy Wire uh, were on to something there. Um, and, and I think you can reach not only your generation, uh, but honestly, I think you can reach the Gen Z kids probably, probably just as much or more, I would say more than say guys my age, right? Um, I don't, I don't know how many young people I got listening to my show. Um, I know there's a few, but, uh, but, but I think, I think your generation, those of you that, that come to realize how the real world works and, and being able to define that, what work is being able to characterize how the real world works, uh, and then being able to define or characterize success. Uh, I think you guys, I think you guys can reach the younger generations. Um, and I, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you, even if I was, you know, if I was 30 years younger, I would still find your show pretty damn interesting. I, I was glued. I listened to your episode on success twice because it was very interesting to hear, you know, kids that grew up in the nineties, right. Uh, talking about success, so, something that I didn't think that I would ever hear from nineties kids, you know, um, but, uh, it was an excellent episode, brother. Uh, and, uh, I hope you guys do more of them. Yeah, man. I appreciate that. Uh, I guess a lot of things, uh, even me watching the media and being part of the, the dare program and, and growing up with MTV, we kind of just thought everybody was going to, you know, live on the streets as a pothead skateboarding or, you know, skateboarding around playing their electrical electric guitar. You know, that, that was, you know, that was your success. And, right. You know, there, there were a few that you know absolutely did that, um, you know, but uh, I don't know. It's uh, we we grew up in a in a, in a time that is so much different than any other time uh, because of the rise of the internet, the invention of social media, having yeah, uh, not not. And I, it was funny. I had this conversation with my stepdaughter over Christmas, going to visit my parents. She saw my set of Encyclopedia Britannica's that my parents bought me. Or around the time I was in middle school to do book reports and research and other things. Yeah. And she's like, what's this? I said, it's Google for old people. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what you got to tell them. I, I remember uh, my buddy's kids came over and they're like, you know, like 14, 15, 16 years old. <clears throat> and uh, they come over to the house. This is like right after I bought the house. Uh, and of course I, I have a lot of old things in the house. Um, I have, <laughs> I hate to say this. I have books in the house. Uh, I have an old rotary phone, uh, you know, an old radio. I have a lot of old things in the house and they got into the, in, into where the old rotary phone was. And, uh, they were genuine. I thought they were joking, but they, they were genuine. Uh, what is this? <laughs> and I had to explain to him what a phone was. <laughs> and I said, there's, there's a sign uh, uh, that I'm truly getting old, I think. The, the wild thing to me is 
the kids that don't know what a compact disc is just because <laughs> they, they've, they've had internet for their entire lives. And I'm talking yeah. about kids that are, you know, 18 years old at this point. Yeah. They, and the big thing to me, the, the revolution in music for me when I was a kid was being able to burn a CD with pirated music. Yeah. Oh, I don't have to go pay $25 for 16 songs at Kmart anymore. Yeah, right. I can download them for free on the internet and yeah. make something that I can put in my CD player or in my car. Yeah. That's that's I mean, cr- that's crazy transition. And you guys really did. Your generation really did go through a transition. Uh, you know, ca- kind of a... Oh, I don't know what you would, how you would characterize it, but kind of a, a a bridging of the old and the new, so to speak. I mean, there was a lot of, you know, in my lifetime, there was a lot of um, very quick, uh, compacted technological advances in my time, even before my time. Uh, and you guys in the '90s kind of got to experience not only the old stuff, but also the new stuff that had pretty basically, you know, been developed uh, or had been in development, uh, you know, for a long time prior. And you guys got to, you guys had all of that in your basket. You had, you had a lot of the old stuff and, and we're just getting into the new stuff. Yeah. I thought like I'd been gifted an eight track tape player with a whole stereo hi-fi system from my uncle, like on my 12th or 13th birthday or something like that <laughs> i thought it was the coolest thing ever and then i was like oh it plays these and not cassettes what the, the hell am i gonna do with this hey i had to i had to get some of you 90s kids to show me how to burn cds when that became a thing yeah yeah cds dvds and now you just log into the internet and play a song yeah and and, and there are other ways to to you know i i mean i was ecstatic when the uh what is it the mini ipod came out Oh yeah, MP3 players and stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I was ecstatic because you know the 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 burn the CD technology, you know nobody was doing that anymore, uh, and the internet was the big thing. And I, I was having to ask you guys, hey, how do I uh, <laughs> how do I do this? And then the iPad, uh, the iPod came out, and I was like, oh shit, I can do this. You know, I mean, it, yeah. it, you know, and that's been and honestly, you know, even doing this podcast. I still, you know, I had to, even with the analog stuff, right? The basic stuff, I had to relearn that from you, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. I think, I think the 90s kids, you know, like I said, everybody, everybody has their share of generational advances and, and transitions and things like that. But I think you guys were unique in the, in, in the fact that you had to utilize both at one time. Yeah, it was. It's. It's. it's uh, looking back on it, it's. It's wild to think of going through it. It's not. It wasn't like it was such a big deal. Like it was cool. Yeah. Um. But looking back on it, it's like wow. That's. Uh, I don't know. It's a, it's a hell of a time to. A hell of a time to be alive. Right. <laughs> oh man. Well, I, you know, know I, I, I did see. I, I'll, I'll wrap. I'll wrap my my segment up here with, with one thing i saw a, a hilarious meme the other day that said uh you know it was i think it was like in 1917 is when they took the the children out of the coal mines yeah. and now that it's 2023 all the kids are obsessed with playing minecraft that tells you <laughs> the children the children yearn for the mines yeah. <laughs> somebody needs to tell them what kind of work that is yeah, it ain't, it, ain't, it ain't just your uh, your joystick thumbs. Yeah, or, right. Uh, Ethan and Aubrey. Yeah. 
<laughs> and the measure of success is not how well you can build towns and cities and buildings in Minecraft. Yeah, uh, how many, how many, how many, or how many likes and follows that your post gets on social media? Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, dude, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end this segment here. Uh, I'm not going to take up too much more of your time here. Um, it was definitely, uh, this was a first for me, having an actual guest on the show. Uh, and uh, I'm glad you can make it, brother. I'm glad, I'm glad you were around. Uh, I really wanted to get uh, your thoughts on, on the show, uh, on your, your episode there, Success, and what, the, what all that meant. And uh, I think, uh, I think you, you wrapped it up pretty well. I think you you uh, you guys really nailed it uh, in your episode. There, there were a lot of things that uh, that I agreed with, and a lot of things that I could relate to. And uh, I think that has to do a lot with not not only the people that you were looking back on and and the things that you remember when you were a kid, uh, but also because you've been through some experiences and you've done things in life that have led you to a point to where you can say, "Yep, this this is what success looks like." Uh, and I can relate to that, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, and I, I'm glad that uh, that that episode had that effect on so many people. Is the feedback that I'm getting, even uh, some some guys that don't really listen to podcasts, they they got hooked, you know, by the conversation and the subject matter. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, my worry was I sounded too preachy at points, but I feel like if I didn't, I really couldn't get the point that I was trying to make across. So, uh, you know, I'm glad you you enjoyed the episode. Hopefully, we'll have some more. Uh, just as profound thoughts coming out along with the dick and fart jokes. Absolutely, dude. Absolutely. I can't wait to get back up there to do another show, but, uh, but thanks for, thanks for coming on to the show, brother. And, uh, definitely we're going to have to do this again. Yeah, buddy. All right, man, we'll catch up with you next time. And, uh, thanks for listening on the, uh, the guy wire podcast as well as last stand with wild bill. Thanks brother. All right. Later, bro. Later, man. Well, there you have it, folks. That was Matt Knight of the Guywire fame. Uh, when you're waiting, you know, in between episodes of The Last Stand, um, or you get a little bored of the uh, social and political commentary that, uh, that a lot of podcasts uh, are famous for, uh, hop on over to the Guywire. Right? You never know what they're going to be talking about. Um, and, it's, and it's a good way to, uh, to get some perspectives uh, and a little hilarity, if you will. Uh, it's always good to have Matt uh, in the center of a discussion, uh, and uh, we appreciate him coming onto the show. So, moving like the wind, folks. So now seems like a good time to take a break. Uh, and in the next segment, folks, we're going to be barking irons, okay? Uh, we're going to be taking the battling stick to the issues of the day and stirring them up. This is the segment that, uh, that I like to call the Big 50. Uh, the Big 50 is where I drop the latest news with brief, put a boot in their ass commentary, folks. And I'm going to tell you what I think, okay? I'm going to say what needs to be said. Because as you know, we're all about the freedom of speech and down on the ground, righteous American perspectives and opinions here at the Carolina Command Center, right here in the good old USA. Now I'll pull something out of my ass for the break. Uh, and when I get back, we're going to get into it. So buckle up and hold on to your butts, folks. Booyah! 
I've never seen a diamond in the flesh. I like I get I'm, I'm like a full time student. I get scheduled for 25 hours a week, and on a weekend they schedule me the entire day, open to close. I'm on the schedule for eight and a half hours. Why are we not talking about how sick a 40 hour work week is? I'm so sorry. So you're telling me that I have to wake up at the butt crack of dawn every single day? Both Saturday and Sunday. I'm like three and a half hours into my shift. There's so many customers and we have four people on the floor all day. <laughs> somewhere that has fluorescent lighting is cold and uncomfortable for the entirety of the day and do that five times a week? Let me live that fantasy. We only have 13 people employed at this store. No, like that's sick. Like you guys are mentally ill. Like, please get diagnosed. We need a union because this can't happen. This can't happen. We need fair scheduling. We need the liberty to be able to do that because there's so many mobile orders and I need to get through all of them and then people are yelling at me because I don't have their orders ready. I don't know what to do. And the customer was misgendering me today. Like, really? What the fuck? She's clearly incompetent. I have a full mustache and beard. What the fuck? Get accommodations for being neurodivergent. What the fuck? And the only thing that wokeness has to offer in exchange is to brainwash bright young minds like you to believe that you are victims, to believe that you have no agency, to believe that what you must do to improve the world is to complain, is to protest is to throw soup on paintings. I'm bigger than I ever dreamed. The way to improve the world is to work, is to create, it is to build. And the problem with woke culture is that it's trained too many young minds like yours to forget about that. Thank you very much. Work ethic is just lost on my generation. That delightful little song you heard during the montage, folks, uh, was our favorite depressing singing clown, uh, Puddles, of Puddles Pity Party, uh, performing the Lord 2013 hit Royals. Okay? Uh, if you've never heard Puddles Pity Party, uh, listen, you find them on YouTube. You'll thank me later. Okay? Welcome back to the show, folks. I'm your less than humble host, you know who of the you know who fame. So the big 50, uh, that's the next segment here. And the final segment of 
the show. All right, what's the Big 50? Well, in old Western lingo, the Big 50 was a 50 caliber sharps rifle used by hunters uh, and hunting professionals uh, for buffalo hunting. Buffalo. <laughs> it was used to hunt buffalo. Uh, it was 16 pounds, unloaded, okay, and it had three-quarter inch, 120 grain black powder cartridges. And if and you were about to tackle something big, uh, like a buffalo, you were taking the big 50 to it, all right? So we're taking the big 50 to some of the bigger news items of the month. In the last two weeks, at the beginning of the 118th United States Congress, the incoming members of the U.S. House of Representatives uh, that were elected in the 2022 midterm elections uh, held an election for the Speaker of the House, Okay, the 128th U.S. Speaker election since the office was was created in 1789. It began on January 3rd, 2023 and concluded in the very early morning hours of January 7th. Kevin McCarthy uh, of California uh, and also the leader of the House Republican Conference won the majority of votes cast on the 15th ballot. Okay. This was the longest speaker election since December of 1859, if I remember the history correctly. McCarthy won the speakership uh, by making several concessions to Republican hardliners, okay? Uh, These hardliners, or these rebels, as I called them at the time, uh, had refused to support Kevin McCarthy uh, through all these rounds of voting uh, for, in their words, not being sufficiently conservative, okay? Uh, this whole thing that we saw in these 15 rounds of voting, uh, this is how things work. Okay. Uh, I remember being very confused by the opposition to Kevin McCarthy, uh, as he was from my perspective, very aligned with the objectives and agenda of the conservative party, uh, and the Republican party. Okay. But the rebels, as I called them at the time, primarily Lauren Boebert, Matt Gates, Chip Roy, and others, uh, they wanted some things to change, okay, like the rules of the House, uh, you know, in the Rules Committee, all right? Now, I remember commenting at the time on the Book of Face uh, that I didn't like that 20 representatives held back over 200, okay? But I also didn't like that the rebels had to fight so damn hard to get McCarthy to concede to the changes that, that they wanted, okay, and that were ultimately needed, I think, all right? You know... At, at the time, I'm, I'm going back and forth. Why are they opposing McCarthy so much? Well, then as I learned more, then I was like, well, why, why is McCarthy, you know, why is, he, why is he opposed to some of these things that, that the rebels want? Okay, because they were very, very conservative-minded issues, if you will. Border issues, term limits, which I don't agree with term limits, okay? And you all know why, all right? You are the term limit people, all right? Uh, and some other issues that I agreed with, uh, you know, and in the end, McCarthy did make those concessions. Okay. Uh, and yet he was still being opposed. All right. So I, I think there was something, uh, of a personal nature, uh, in this, um, but it was also a trust issue. And I think they had to work through that. All right. Uh, cause you know, look, McCarthy did make those concessions. All right. So, you know, after he made those concessions, what was there left to ask for, right? So I, I remember going back and forth with this whole thing. 
And I said at the time, after it was all done, or just before it was done, uh, real progress is being made here, okay? The more I learned about what was going on and what this back and forth was all about, the more I understood that real progress was being made. Now, look, the Democrats, the Commiecrats, okay, they voted Hakeem Jeffries uh, 212 votes every damn time, okay? There's no real debate uh, among the Democrats or desire to change things for the better uh, because for them, the socialist fascist machine is what they know, okay? The word was put out, 8 o'clock, day one, it was going to be Hakeem Jeffries, okay? And they voted that way every single time in lockstep, okay? This is how they do business, all right? They, they, they lock up, they, lock, they march in lockstep, uh, and they're all on the same damn page. I mean, it's almost, I can hear the jackboots from here, you know? Uh, but, but what I came to realize was that the Republicans, uh, the 20 rebels, all right, used the tools that were pro- provided by the founding fathers to fight for necessary changes, even when the majority would rather just have carried on, okay? From the outside, it looked like a dumpster fire. All right. And, and even the mainstream media characterized it uh, pretty much that way. OK. Uh, but like I said, I learned a few things and I finally came to understand that the, the fire needed to burn. OK. After it was all said and done, no matter how the left tried to characterize it, the Freedom Caucus got everything uh, or damn near everything that they asked for. OK. In the end, Chip Roy, Lauren Boebert uh, and Matt Gates. Uh, kind of revealed to me, at least, uh, that, you know, they'd kind of run out of things to ask for, okay? Uh, McCarthy made every concession uh, that they wanted, all right? Now, uh, I know that McCarthy, a lot of people think that McCarthy didn't always act like a staunch conservative, okay? Uh, and I understand that, especially with the $1.7 billion nightmare that got passed, okay? But in the end, uh, as I said... Uh, it was time to trust Kevin McCarthy, all right? That's, he was always going to be the speaker. It was just a matter of when, all right? Uh, and I can tell you, like I said, I learned a lot throughout this whole thing. The process, the protocols that our founding fathers created, uh, they absolutely worked here, without a doubt, all right? They worked as designed and were on full display, by the way, for the American people. We got to see it, Okay. The newcomers in Congress and some of the older representatives who wanted to see the kind of changes made within the House uh, that would benefit the institution itself and the American people did exactly what they promised their people that they would do. All right. Now, would these things have happened without their, you know, their rebellion here? Hard to say. Right. Uh, But what they fought for and how they fought for those things uh, to me is admirable. And it did and now does serve the American people. And we got to see it, folks. All right. I always say that it, you know, it's with increasing concern uh, that the people, particularly our younger people, don't know how our government is supposed to work and why. All right. And we got to see it this time. All right. We got to see something that we don't normally see. Hell, I don't remember ever seeing it. Okay. But a lot of young people don't know how this is supposed to work. Hell, I'm no expert. Right. Even I questioned it which is why I watched it go down and asked the questions that I did. All right. I, I watched it folks. I mean, (laughs) am I the only one who ordered a pizza and bought beer for the final night of debate? 
and voting, okay? It was like I was pre-gaming a boxing match or a football game, okay? Am I the only one who does that sort of thing? Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> this could explain why I'm still single. You just don't know what you're missing, ladies. Uh, the next big 50 item we have here on the stack, uh, Ukraine, all right? Uh, we're sending more money uh, and more tanks now, or, or, or we're starting to send tanks, or we're getting ready to send tanks. Let me just say this about Ukraine, folks, okay? Y'all know that when this invasion kicked off, I was all for sending a coalition of soldiers and things into Ukraine to flood Kiev and the eastern portion of Ukraine to force Putin to think twice about invading Ukraine. Of course, he already thought this through, right? Uh, you know, ha having done nothing on our part, uh, he already thought this whole thing through. And having Biden in the White House was basically the same as having Obama in the White House, okay? No one was going to stop him from doing what he was doing because no one had stopped him when he took Crimea back in 2014, all right? Now, you'll notice that he didn't do jack shit during Trump, okay? But here we are. Uh, Putin is in Ukraine now, all right? He's in the Luhansk and the uh, Donetsk, okay, and other places, all right? Throughout this whole thing, we've allowed him to define escalation, all right? And we allowed him to cow us into thinking that we'd be in World War III uh, with nuclear weapons if we did anything like no-fly zones uh, or any boots on the ground or Patriot missiles or high Mars, okay? You know, throughout this whole thing, he's led us to believe or at least scared us into believing that a nuclear war is a certainty if we do anything in Ukraine, all right? Now, little by little, all right, we're, we, we've done some of these things, okay? With the exception of no-fly zones and boots on the ground, as far as I know. We sent more money, uh, and then we sent more money, and we're going to be sending more money. And at this point, I'm like, it's just like Afghanistan and the respect that we're spending money that we don't have. And we're spending money for what's basically uh, going to turn out to be a stalemate. Okay? And ultimately, uh, what I fear is, uh, is that Ukraine will be defeated. All right? Um, like I said, when it's all said and done, I fear that among the piles of weaponry and cash that we're sending, they'll just be piles of dead Ukrainian soldiers and no one left to fight. In the end, Russia chokes out Ukraine this way, okay? And what will we have accomplished at that point? Not a fucking thing, right? And the American taxpayer will be on the hook for it, all right? I hate to say I told you so, uh, you know, but I told you so, all right? We should have made the moves at the beginning, okay? Now, we're just spending insane amounts of money and sending arms and weapon systems uh, to Ukraine, and it's doing nothing, all right? I mean, it's, I mean it is helping, okay? Uh, but it's not pushing Russia out of Ukraine. Putin is still in Ukraine, all right? Now, meanwhile, back at the ranch, China has already made up its mind, okay? And I fear that that doesn't bode well for Taiwan or any other country that the tyrants of the world have their eyes set upon, all right? Uh, I still believe in Ukraine, 
I think that Ukraine, even though, look, a lot of people bring up the whole corruption thing in Ukraine. Yes, I believe that they have a corruption problem. All right. They've been trying to get out of that for 20 years. All right. Uh, I really think that there are people there that really want to see uh, real change in Ukraine, but they still have this problem. But, you know, people talking about, you know, how corrupt Ukraine is. Uh, really, we're going to we're we're going to use that as the reason, considering what's going on here in the United States. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm not worried about World War Three. Maybe I ought to be. But, uh, you know, I don't know, folks. I, I like I said, I, I, I'm hung up on the point that we should have done something in the beginning, something more substantial to make Putin think twice. All right. And, and maybe not, you know, do the invasion. All right, but we didn't do that. Okay, so we are where we are. I believe that Ukraine ought to be free. Uh, I believe that uh, the world should get Putin out of Ukraine. All right, I think that's something that we need to do. Now, how you do it, you know, uh, look, diplomacy, diplomacy is always preferable. All right, but I don't think he's going anywhere, uh, no matter how long we talk. All right, uh, I don't think he's going to go anywhere. I think it's going to take something bigger and badder uh, for something to happen for Putin to get out of Ukraine. All right. I just don't like the idea now that since he's still there, uh, we're looking at a stalemate at best, ultimate defeat at worst. And the American taxpayer is going to be on the hook for it for a long fucking time. All right. So that's all I got to say about Ukraine. The next item on the list. Teletubbies and Crocs are sponsoring underage fashion shows uh, at drag conventions. In an article by The Blaze, uh, it says that this year's DragCon counts the perforated shoe company Crocs and the children's television show Teletubbies among its sponsors. Both the convention and the after-hours shows are for all ages, despite some performers who are set to walk around with fake sex organs exposed and attached to their get-ups. Okay? Uh, the website uh, states, DragCon is an all-ages, family-friendly event, and all are welcome at RuPaul's DragCon UK. Kids eight and under are free when accompanied by an adult with a ticket. Now, what is it I always say, folks? What happens there can happen here. Now, can I ask a question? What in the actual shit are we people doing? You can't have an event where perverse men pretending to be women, very insulting and ugly renditions of women, I might add, uh, you, you know, where they dance on a stage exposing themselves uh, suggestively in front of kids. Uh, you can't call it family friendly. OK, it's nothing of the sort. It's a perversion. It's a perversion by men. Children learn by observing as well as by instruction. And what these guys are doing is teaching children that it's okay to disguise the truth. Okay? That it's okay to uh, gyrate in front of kids sexually. They're teaching them that their assertions and lifestyle choices are not harmful or false. Now, if you've listened to my episode, Standing Between the Drag Queen and Your Kid, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. Okay, this has infiltrated our schools, folks, uh, and our homes. 
by virtue of television uh, and the internet that says it's cool and it's okay to be something that you're not, uh, and that it's okay to hide it from your parents, uh, you know, with the help of teachers, uh, principals, you know, uh, with the help of the schools. Uh, this, this thing has infiltrated our communities, and I'm telling you now, folks, you have every right to protest and withdraw your support from any person or business that condones or supports the transgender and drag queen movement, okay? And if you don't, your schools, your kids, your towns, and ultimately the people, uh, their moral compasses uh, will ultimately be destroyed. And your towns, and ultimately the republic, won't be worth a fat baby's ass, okay? The republic should have strong foundations of truth that hold it up, okay? Every day that we undermine specific truths, uh, and specifically that men are men and women are women, then all truth is in danger, okay? And the republic is in danger of falling and crumbling all around us until it's no longer even a shadow of its former self, okay? Every day that you undermine specific truth, like this one, okay? Men are men, women are women. You're, you're putting the republic in danger, Okay. Back in the day, things like, you know, exposing children to this kind of thing would have led to jail time. Okay. Uh, it wouldn't have been called family friendly. It would have been called you're going to jail. Okay. Maybe we ought to, you know, think about those things. Okay. Maybe we ought to reinstitute that idea. Okay. Because drag queens, they're not women, folks. All right. Uh, and I dare say they're not even men. All right. But they are. Physically, technically, they are men, all right? What they really are is a danger and a threat to our children and the truth. And the sad thing about all of this is that there are parents that are willing to put their children in this kind of environment, all right? And it's wrong. It's child endangerment. Uh, it, you know, it, it, look, go back and listen to Standing Between the Drag Queen and Your Kid, Okay, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. We better start suiting up, folks. All right, because this shit's getting out of control. All right. Now, like I said, uh, the Blaze reported on this. Okay, uh, they previously reported uh, that the world's largest drag queen story time was scheduled to take place on January 23rd uh, or January 21st in 2023 in Florida. Okay, uh, that thing was also billed as a family-friendly event, okay? Um, I, I don't know what we're doing, folks. Uh, I don't know why this is spiraling out of control, but we better start speaking out against it, all right? We better start speaking up about it, all right? Because, like I said, this is putting children in real danger. Now, the next thing on the stack, um, uh, documents found in the garage. <laughs> uh, you remember when they did this to Trump, when they went after Trump, raided Mar-a-Lago, uh, accused him of stealing classified documents, right? Uh, all those photos came out of all these classified documents that, you know, spread eagle out on the floor and everything. Uh, and, and, and the president, you know, Joe Jackwagon Biden, uh, said that, you know, it was highly irresponsible you know, he didn't understand how someone could be so irresponsible with classified documents uh, and put the national security at risk. Remember all that? Well, 
Turns out that President Joe Jackwagon Biden was found to have classified documents in not one, not two, uh, not three, but four different locations. And they've been laying around unsecured for decades, right? Going all the way to, you know, all the way back to his days as a senator. All right. Uh, turns out he had all that stuff. And, and here's the thing. All right. Uh, once again, you know, we find that the commiecrats, all right, uh, the Democrats have been accusing conservatives of doing precisely what it is that they're doing and what they were doing the entire time. Now, as vice president, uh, Joe Biden didn't have any authority whatsoever to declassify any documents, no matter what Whoopi Goldberg's dumbass says. Okay, VP does not have the authority to declassify documents on will. Okay, at will. All right. Nobody have the you know authority to take classified documents. So we find out that you know all these classified documents were spread around to you know to different locations owned by Joe Biden. All right, and we're finding out that. Quite possibly, uh, Hunter Biden had access to these documents. And in fact, uh, there's some strong evidence to suggest that he actually read some of this stuff uh, because it, it's, it's reflected in an email uh, that they got out of his laptop. Okay. Now, Corinne Jean-Pierre has been uh, a complete uh, liar about this whole thing uh, and has obfuscated the severity of this thing and, and, and what's been going on and all this stuff. And now we have a special prosecutor uh, that's been assigned to the case, right? Uh, here's the thing about that. Back in November of 2022, all right, uh, Merrick Garland uh, sicked a special prosecutor on Donald Trump for th- just this kind of thing, all right? Uh, at that time, he knew and the FBI knew that Joe Biden had classified documents. Now, how fucking shady slimy is that? When he was assigning a special prosecutor to go after Trump and that whole thing, all right, with the, with the classified documents that were in dispute, okay, he knew that Joe Biden had these documents. Joe Biden knew. That he had these documents. The White House knew. Karine Jean-Pierre, she knew. They all lied to your face. They lied to the American people. They lied to everybody. As per usual. Joe Biden withheld that fact. Uh, or Merrick Garland withheld the fact uh, from Congress uh, and from the American people uh, until he was forced to address it. Same thing with the president. All right. They all knew. All right. Uh, the DOJ withheld that fact from everybody that should have known until they were forced to address it. Now, the reason we know about all of this, uh, we, we, you know, we have CBS to thank for this. OK, uh, but Biden took documents going all the way back to his days as a senator. And like I said, at no time does a senator or the VP, for that matter, have the authority to declassify intelligence at will. All right. So don't be fooled by any of these stories. Whoopi Goldberg was pushing this thing out that the VP has authority. Bullshit. Now, I'm beginning to suspect that this is a systemic problem that we have. 
All right. But uh, but just remember, folks, Biden uh, and Hillary Clinton, if you want to go back that far, actively engaged in obfuscation, lying, destroying evidence in Clinton's case, and the FBI and DOJ assisted in the obfuscation and cover up. Okay, so uh, I'll be interested to see who else comes forward, uh, especially considering the fact that Mike Pence uh, came forward <laughs> and said that he had uh, documents, right? Pence did it too, is, is, is the thing that we're hearing from mainstream media. Uh, so yeah, we have a problem, and we better fucking fix it. And we better fix it, fix it fast, all right? But like I said, let's not get it twisted, folks. Joe Biden is still the thief and the liar that we all say he is, all right? And like I said, even he doesn't hold a candle to Hillary Clinton, all right, if you want to go back that far. What is it that I always say, folks? Whatever it is that the left accuses the conservative of doing, they've already done themselves. So this whole classified document thing, all right, uh, what they went after Trump for and raided Mar-a-Lago for, <laughs> uh, they're going to end up having to deal with this now with Joe Biden's dumbass uh, having taken classified documents uh, all the way back to his days being a senator. Okay? Uh, they're all liars, and they got caught with their pants down. Can I do it? Can I do it now? I'm doing it. <laughs> Let's see what else is in the stack. Send it. Uh, I saw this the other day. Uh, and actually saw the video from Project Veritas, um, and I posted about it uh, on the Book of Face. Uh, apparently, uh, well, not apparently, uh, it's a fact, an undercover journalist at Project Veritas caught a Pfizer director uh, discussing internal plans to mutate the COVID viruses by way of this directed evolution, as he called it, uh, using live monkeys so that the pharmaceutical company, Pfizer, uh, could develop new vaccines for their profit. Uh, Jordan Christian Walker, MD. He's the Pfizer Director of Research and Development, Strategic Operations, MRNA Scientific Planner. Uh, he was caught on camera admitting that COVID is a cash cow for Pfizer. All right. Was a cash cow for Pfizer. Uh, and is going to be a cash cow for Pfizer uh, for a good long while. And that Pfizer's goal is to mutate viruses through this directed evolution, which really, it's, it's another way of saying gain of function, okay, while insisting that it's not gain of function, okay? Uh, Dr. Walker is one of the executives that plans new drugs by analyzing disease trends, uh, and he evaluates the demographics to see if these drugs are going to be profitable to the company, one of his primary responsibilities is ensuring that research and development money goes into the right therapeutic areas, okay? Now, if you've seen this video, you'll know this guy said what we've all suspected uh, all this time, and he even said things that we hadn't even considered, all right? 
the, the idea that Pfizer would, you know, on its own, mutate viruses in order to create vaccines that they could push to the American public. All right. Uh, vaccines, medical therapeutics, medical science. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. You know, the medical industry has done wonders for the human race. Okay. There's no doubt about it. All right. Certainly men and women in the medical field, all aspects of it, uh, really want to save lives and improve the lives of the people. Okay. Research and development scientists have been motivated by the greater good for mankind for, for hundreds of years. Okay. But we have discovered, uh, here with this project Veritas video that that is no longer the case with too damn many scientists and researchers and manufacturers of medicines and therapeutics. All right. It would appear that the medical pharmaceutical companies are manufacturing, manipulating viruses like COVID-19 or influenza and quite possibly other illnesses in order to create medicines or vaccines that they can profit from. Now, this guy, Walker, he literally admits that Pfizer is or is considering doing exactly what the commies in Wuhan, China were doing. They're going to conduct gain-of-function research and experimentation for the sole purpose of creating mutations that will necessitate the administering of a vaccine that they produce for profit, which this guy likes, by the way. He says so in the video. And what's more, the reason that they can get away with all this is because the government regulators are corrupt. Surprise there, right? Uh, his, His contention is... Uh, or how he d- describes this is that the regulators don't really regulate anything because if they're too regulatorily harsh, the one-time government regulator won't get a job at Pfizer and won't get rich. Okay, so it's like having the fox tell you that you know he'll be the one to regulate other foxes so that they won't kill all the chickens. Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. Right. Then he goes to work for the foxes that he used to regulate. All right. Chickens for everybody. Fucking chickens. All right. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, chickens aren't getting any better. They're actually dying. And the foxes are getting fatter every day. Yeah, you can go ahead and fuck off with your bullshit lies and your flu shots. Okay. Uh, I want to stay healthy. All right. Y'all just want to make a buck off of it. All right. And, and you're going you're willing to do the unthinkable in order to profit off of all of that. And while there is legitimate cost to developing real medicine and vaccines uh, and methods to saving, improving and prolonging life, it would seem that monetary motivated corruption runs rampant in the pharmaceutical industry. And to make sure that they can continue with this scheme, they make sure that the political party at the top gets their cuts in donations and political support. And they promise them jobs at the end of their government tour. Big tech is covering down on all this PR work for them, by the way, by censoring those who tell the truth. And once again, like I said the other day, the root fucking cause of messes like these, it's the government. What else is in the stack? Send it. Uh, We found out that... (laughs) 
<laughs> we found out that an FBI agent uh, that was driving the Russian collusion investigation of Trump uh, was actually colluding with Russians. He was arrested. <laughs> you can't make this shit up, folks. I'm telling you. So what do we know from all this? The FBI is corrupt. The DOJ is corrupt. All right. Many politicians are corrupt. You know, to the Republicans' credit, all right, and uh, Kevin McCarthy's credit, uh, two of them were denied their assignments on the Intelligence Committee, all right, Adam Schiff, that congenital liar, uh, and Eric Swalwell, who likes to date Chinese spies, okay? Uh, we know that the Biden administration is corrupt, all right? Corrupt, corruption is rampant in this administration, folks. It's, it's rampant in the government, okay? It's no wonder they hated Donald Trump. All right. We find that the FBI lead investigator, Charles McGonagall, who was driving the Russian collusion hoax, was in fact colluding with Russians. Folks, I'm going to tell you right now, he's not the only FBI guy uh, who was turned. All right. I think we're going to find out more about this. All right. Uh, but, you know, like I posted on Facebook, all right, or the Book of Face, uh, I'm reminded of history's villains. Okay. And what one particular villain said once in what I consider to be or what I would characterize as a seething rage against America. Now, you younger folks may not know this because you've been misled uh, about the concepts and realities of communism, all right? You've been lied to about a great many things about America, all right? Uh, back in history, there was once a committed enemy of the United States called the Soviet Union, all right? This enemy was thought to have been defeated in 1991 before many of you were even born, okay? But we learned that the Soviet Union had not been defeated. It lived in darkness under the cover of capitulation at the end of the Cold War. But during its early years, uh, and in 1956, the premier of the committed enemy of the United States, the Soviet Union, uh, Nikita Khrushchev, made a stunningly cold and calculated prediction. He's quoted as saying, we can't expect the American people to jump from capitalism to communism, but we can assist their elected leaders in giving them small doses of socialism until they awaken one day to find that they actually have communism. We don't have to invade the United States. We will destroy you from within. We will take America without firing a shot, and then we will bury you. What do you know? What, do you been, what, what have you been told? What have you been taught, you younger people? These things that the younger generation is learning these days, what they're being told, what they're being taught, they think that these things are true, folks. All right? All of this uh, social justice, uh, woke ideologies, they think all of that's true. And they think that their causes against America are noble ones. And they think that by undoing the republic and instituting communism, uh, that this will bring happiness and prosperity and equality to the people, 
okay? Because they don't know what the Soviet Union was, all right? They don't know what real communism uh, did to people, all right? They don't even know who Khrushchev was, all right? Now, if we don't do what's necessary to reinvigorate our founding spirit and principles, folks, uh, and teach our kids to believe in America, America will be dead and cold and in the ground before they can even make the connection between the two, all right? We got to do this, folks. We have to teach our young kids to believe in America again, all right? But it's really damn difficult to do that when you have an FBI and a Department of Justice that are criminally compromised and when they employ the very same tactics and engage in the very same behavior that the Soviet Union was known for. The FBI, the DOJ, the White House, Congress, uh, the Democrat Party and its supporters, all engaging in the very same behaviors that they swore to fight against. And we wonder why it's so damn easy to have our kids turned against us. Remember my four R's, folks. Resist the lies. Rebel against tyranny. Remove the corrupt. And restore Restore the republic. We talked about success and what I think it is and what it takes to get there, what it looks like. But success, in many ways, is a subjective thing. Folks, and you young people out there, the bottom line is this. If you want it, you can get it. And you can get it the same way we had to get it. You may not know it or understand it now, but there are things that we will have in common. And that is the understanding that nothing comes easy and nothing is free in this world if we desire to realize our success. We must take the world for what it is and accept the truths and realities of life. We must start at the beginning, but fix our eyes upon the things that will carry us to the next challenge and to the next reward. If you can take a few cues and some hard-learned wisdom from those who came before you, then you will have the opportunity to not only achieve the success that you desire, but you just might be able to change the world. Each generation learns from and builds upon the last generation. So learn all you can and use your knowledge for good. I said that nothing is free in this world, but in this country, the greatest and freest nation the world has ever seen, there is but one thing that is free to us all, and that is opportunity. Find it, seek it out, take it wherever and whenever you can, and then put your signature on it. Make it your own. You do that, and you will have discovered the path that leads to your success. And like freedom, the road to success is sometimes a bumpy and rocky ride. Always remember, never forget that you're not alone in this world. We're here for each other. All for one and one for all. It is truly our journey to take. So, when do we start? Well, that's all I got for today, folks. But don't worry, dry your eyes. 
I'll be back next month with another unapologetically accurate and abrasive episode rendering my righteous rhetoric for your reception. Remember, freedom never goes out of style, folks, and I'm the coolest old guy wearing it. Now, for your listening pleasure as we head off into the sunset of episode 21, it's that old gospel fave of 1946, Old Noah by the Jubilaires. Booyah! The hewing of the salt cried, sin repent. A hundred years he hammered and sawed, building the ark by the grace of God. When the ark was done, God's voice was heard. He said, Now Noah, let me tell you what to do. Calling animals two by two, so he called them in an ark. Two by two, he called the birds, the ox with the kangaroo. Then he called in Jephthah, the ham and sham. Then God began to flood the land. He raised his hands to heaven on high. Stars and moon from the sky Shook the mouth and he troubled the sea Hits the wind to his chariot the wheel He stepped on land, stood on the shore And declared that time there wouldn't be no more But it's over and over Oh, 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 oh